Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. Clever girl. <laughs> Clever girl. <laughs> and we're the Film Flamers. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> and uh, we're going to continue our month of deep dives into summer blockbuster horror films by talking about a movie that has been very special to me and Chris for a good portion of our lives. Yeah. And that's Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park. Yeah. Just like Jaws, we're going to really dive deep into the pond here. We're going to really dive deep into the shaking puddle. <laughs> <laughs> the rippling puddle. <laughs> of Jurassic Park. Yes. Um, we know that this movie is insanely popular, and I'm fairly certain that everybody listening to this podcast has probably seen Jurassic Park at least once in their life, right? Mm-hmm. So um, why don't we just get into it? Jurassic Park is a 1993 American science fiction adventure film directed by Steven Spielberg and produced by Kathleen Kennedy and Gerald R. Mullen. It's the first film in the Jurassic Park franchise and is based on the novel of the same name by Michael Crichton. Is that That's how I've always said his name. Yep. Is that how Crichton. you say it? Yep. That's how I say it. It's certainly not Crichton. Crichton. Michael Crichton. Yeah. The spelling of his last name annoys me. Who also wrote the screenplay alongside David Kep. Much of the novel's exposition and violence were removed for the film, as well as many changes to the characters. The film stars Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum, Richard Attenborough, Samuel Jackson, and Wayne Knight at all. David Kep's last name bothers me, too. I know. So it's like writers' Co-ep. last names that we're just not, we're not yeah. feeling. Coep. Christian and Coep. <laughs> Christian and Coep. <laughs> well, speaking of Christian. Before his novel was published, there was a bidding war for the film production rights with four different studios competing. Spielberg first learned of the novel while it was being written, as Crichton and he were working together on a screenplay that would eventually become the television series ER. Ultimately, and with the help of Spielberg, Universal acquired the rights for $1.5 million, and filming began in August of 1992, with post-production stretching all the way into May of 1993, while Spielberg was filming Schindler's List. The dinosaurs were created with groundbreaking computer-generated imagery by Industrial Light and Magic, and with life-size animatronic dinosaurs built by Stan Winston and his team. To create the various sounds in the film, Spielberg himself invested in DTS, a company focused on digital surround sound formats. John Williams wrote the iconic score. There's also an extensive $65 million marketing campaign compared to the budget of the actual film, which is less at $63 million, which included, <laughs> <laughs> which included licensing deals with over 100 companies to produce over 1,000 different products. Ironically, the film's tagline was, An adventure 65 million years in the making. <laughs> I'm a little weirded out uh, <laughs> by like the the sixty three million dollar budget and the sixty five million dollar marketing campaign. I don't I don't think I've ever heard of a marketing campaign being more expensive than the film itself. I mean, I think that when you can get into to licensing and, and making lots of products, because just like we talked about with Jaws, you know, Jurassic Park had a lot of shit tied in with the movie. Like, I, I remember when it came out and not being able to escape Jurassic Park at all that summer. Oh, I know, but it was such a huge gamble. But at the same time, they must those studio that studio must have seen what Spielberg had done with the new technology and everything, and just been like, okay, let's just do this and go for broke. And they did, and of course, it you know made a billion dollars. And I, mm-hmm. I don't think that's an 
an exaggeration. No, I think it's <laughs> far more than a billion at this point, too. So, yeah, I think they made the right call. Well, all right, everybody. Hold on to your butts. Welcome to Jurassic Park. Since the beginning of time, man has searched the earth for evidence of its past. But while some have looked for clues to the mystery, one man has found the way to bring the mystery back to life. I own an island off the coast of Costa Rica, and I've spent the last five years setting up a kind of biological preserve here. On this private island, science has defied evolution. Where do you get a hundred million year old dinosaur blood? Genetics has mastered creation. We've made living biological attractions so astounding that they'll capture the imagination of the entire planet. And extinction is a thing of the past. Welcome to Jurassic Park. They got in there, King Kong. None of these attractions are ready yet, of course, but the park will open with the basic tour you're about to take. Hey, look at this. You see something? Dinosaurs and man, two species separated by 65 million years of evolution, have just been suddenly thrown back into the mix together. Can I touch it? Sure. How can we possibly have the slightest idea? You feel that? Senses are failing all over the park. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's nice. Our phones are out too. Gotta go. Universal Pictures presents. Hey, hey, freeze! I can't get Jurassic Park back online. An adventure 65 million years in the making. Oh no. Just a delay. That's all it is. All major theme parks had delays. When they opened Disneyland in 1956, um, nothing worked. But John, if the Pirates of the Caribbean breaks down, the pirates don't eat the tourists. You sure we're safe? Yes. Unless they figure out how to open doors. Jurassic Park. Isla Nublar, an island off the coast of Costa Rica, a team of handlers are attempting to release a very dangerous dinosaur into its enclosure under the protection of several armed men and a game warden, Robert Muldoon, played by Bob Peck. But the process goes awry when the animal outsmarts the workers and it attacks and kills a handler, prompting lawyer Donald Gennaro to investigate and look for a well-known scientist to endorse the new zoo venture. 
Meanwhile, Dennis Nedry, played by Wayne Knight, a computer programmer working at the new zoo, makes a deal with a rival company to steal the embryos of several species of dinosaur and smuggle them off the island. He admits to the rival company that he has a plan and has control over all the automated systems of the park. Creator of the park, industrialist John Hammond, played by Richard Attenborough, has traveled to the American Badlands to entice paleontologist Dr. Alan Grant, played by Sam Neill, and paleobotanist Dr. Ellie Sattler, played by Laura Dern, to travel to his new park and give their endorsement. They agree after he offers to fully fund their current dig for the next several years. Also traveling to the island with Gennaro is superstar mathematician Dr. Ian Malcolm, played by Jeff Goldblum. As they travel to the park, to the visitor center, they spot a herd of live Brachiosaurus, and they realize that Hammond has cloned dinosaurs that actually live on the grounds. During a tour of the visitor center and labs, the group learns that dinosaur DNA was extracted from mosquitoes preserved in amber, and that frog DNA was used to fill the missing gaps of genetic code. The dinosaurs were all created female, so they will not reproduce on their own. Malcolm scoffs at the idea, saying that it will inevitably break down. After witnessing the hatching of a baby velociraptor, the group have lunch and discuss the ethics of cloning and the implications of genetic engineering. The group is joined by Hammond's young grandchildren, Lex and Tim, Ariana Richards and Joseph Mazzello, respectively, for a tour of the park in automated vehicles. The kids sit in one car with Gennaro while the scientists ride in a separate vehicle. Hammond watches the process from the control room with the assistance of Chief Engineer Ray Arnold, played by Samuel L. Jackson, and Dennis Nedry. The tour is kind of a snooze, as two dinosaurs don't appear, but everyone gets out of their cars to investigate a sick triceratops. The tour is cut short, however, due to a tropical storm heading toward the island, and Dr. Sattler stays behind to work with the triceratops. All park workers are encouraged to leave for the mainland, and Nedry springs into action. He sets the park systems to fail, steals the embryos, and drives off for the boat to the mainland. He gets lost along the way, and eventually wrecks his vehicle. While attempting to get back on the road, he encounters a child-sized dinosaur, Dilophosaurus, who displays a brightly colored frill and spits venom into Nedry's face, temporarily blinding him. Nedry is killed and eaten inside his vehicle. As the park systems go offline, the automated tour stops outside the T-Rex paddock. The storm begins, and everyone waits inside their vehicles. The visitors notice that a goat that was used to earlier entice the T-Rex into appearing is missing. One of the goat's legs falls on top of the roof of the children's car, and they realize that the giant dinosaur is free from its enclosure. The frightened Gennaro flees the car and hides in a nearby restroom, leaving the children to fend for themselves. Dr. Grant watches this and tells Malcolm to stay still, as the T-Rex can only see movement. The children, in a panic, begin flashing a light, getting the attention of the dinosaur, and it starts to smash the vehicle with the children inside. Dr. Grant attempts to rescue them by luring the dinosaur back into the enclosure with a flare, but Dr. Malcolm fucks it all up by trying to be a hero too. Malcolm also flees toward the restroom, but the T-Rex gives chase and devours the screaming Gennaro. Grant can't get Tim out of the smashed vehicle, and the T-Rex pushes the car over the side into the paddock below. Grant and Lex are forced down into the park as well. The vehicle is stuck in a tree with Tim inside, and Dr. Grant climbs up to save him. They are almost killed when the vehicle falls, and they are forced down the tree very quickly. The trio hide in another tall tree and fall asleep watching the Brachiosaurus eating. Meanwhile, in the control room, Arnold is trying to get Jurassic Park back online, but he cannot break through Nedry's programming. 
Hammond asked Muldoon to rescue his grandchildren, so he and Dr. Sattler head into the park. They arrive at the T-Rex paddock and find the place in ruin, and one of the cars missing. They find Gennaro's mangled body and a badly injured Malcolm, who they load into their jeep. Dr. Sattler discovers the missing vehicle and they investigate, only to find that Dr. Grant and the children have left. Malcolm begins to see movement in a nearby puddle and encourages the other two to get into the jeep and leave when suddenly the T-Rex appears and chases them. They narrowly escape with their lives and go back to the control room. The following day, Dr. Grant and the children make their way through the park, encountering other dinosaur species and avoiding the T-Rex. Dr. Grant discovers hatched dinosaur eggs, proving the animals are breeding despite the precautions taken by geneticists. The flaw lies with the added amphibian DNA, allowing the dinosaurs to switch genders when in a single-sex environment. Malcolm was right, and life has found a way. Unable to work around Nedry's system, Arnold convinces Hammond that shutting down the main system and rebooting might bring everything back online. The plan works, but the electricity is not fully restored, and Arnold volunteers to travel to the maintenance shed to complete the process. The others move to the emergency bunker, but when he doesn't return, Muldoon and Dr. Sattler leave to find him and complete restoring the park's grid. While outside, they notice that the Velociraptor paddock has been breached, and the deadly creatures are loose. They don't have time to make a plan, however, as Muldoon knows they are already being hunted. He tells Dr. Sattler to make a run for the shed and lock herself inside while he hunts the raptors. During his hunt, Muldoon falls into the raptor's trap and is killed. Dr. Grant and the children finally make their way back to an electrified fence, still off due to the system failures, and they attempt to climb over it to make their way back to the visitor center. While they are climbing, Dr. Sattler has finally started the reboot process and must turn on the park's systems one by one. When she reboots the electric fence, Tim is shocked and falls to the ground. Dr. Grant revives Tim and they make their way back to the visitor center. Dr. Sattler is relieved the system is back on when she feels Arnold touch her shoulder, but she discovers that it's just his severed arm and he has been mutilated by a velociraptor, which is in the building with her. She escapes and locks the creature in the shed. Meanwhile, Dr. Grant leaves the children in the dining room and goes to look for the others. While the children eat, Lex notices the shadow of a velociraptor on the wall and they flee to the kitchen to hide. Dr. Sattler sees Grant outside the center. She runs to him, and they head back inside to the others. While the children are hiding in the kitchen, the raptors have learned to open doors, and they come in to find them. Tim locks one in the walk-in freezer, and they escape with Grant and Sattler to the control room, although a raptor is trying to force its way inside while Grant and Sattler hold the door. Lex is sure that she can get the systems back online using the computer mainframe. She does, and the doors automatically lock. They call Hammond and Malcolm and tell them to get the helicopter ready and pick them up, but the raptor breaks through the glass and into the room. The group escapes to the lobby, where the remaining raptors surround them. Suddenly, the T-Rex barges into the lobby and kills one of the raptors. The other attacks the T-Rex, allowing the group to run outside just as Hammond pulls up with the jeep. Dr. Grant tells Hammond that he has decided not to endorse his park, and Hammond agrees. They make their way to the waiting helicopter, and Hammond takes one last look at his creation before they all get on board to leave for safety. Cuddled with the sleeping children, Dr. Grant watches a flock of pelicans flying across the water, obviously reflecting on his experience and what he has learned. The end.
Jurassic Park was released on June 11, 1993, just two days after its premiere in Washington, D.C., on 2,400 screens nationwide and on an additional 3,400 internationally. It earned over $50 million domestically during opening weekend, and would eventually gross $357 million in the U.S. Total global box office for the initial release of Jurassic Park would pass $900 million. And that is, you know, in compared to its $63 million budget and $65 million marketing campaign yeah. budget. So, mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, it's a big return on investment. The film has been re-released many times since 1993. Most recently, like Jaws, it was shown in theaters and drive-ins this summer, as, of course, COVID killed the release plan for several newer films. During this run, it grossed enough to top the box office for the fourth time since its original release. During its 1993 release, it passed Spielberg's own E.T. as the highest-grossing movie ever. It held this title until 1997, when James Cameron's Titanic surpassed it. Overall, this movie has grossed more than $1 billion against a budget of $63 million. It became the 17th film to ever pass the billion-dollar mark, and is currently the 41st highest-grossing film ever. Yeah. What were the first 16? I mean, obviously, E.T., Star Wars, Gone with the Wind, things like that, but... Um, I would have to look that up. Oh. I mean, anyway. at this point, a lot, a lot of movies have surpassed the billion dollar by mark. But. Yeah, by this point, but it was the seventeenth in nineteen ninety three. I didn't realize they so many films had passed the billion dollar mark. Maybe in their entire run. Yeah, I think they're talking like lo- global yeah. and like yeah. total box office. The way we talk about that now is during an initial release, and I think mm-hmm. the only ones that have done that are like a f- obviously quite a few, but I think like Avatar and you know Endgame have passed the billion mark on their release. And I think other Jurassic Park movies too at this point have done that. But I am, you know, the thing is, is that when we're talking about this now, like movie tickets are so much more expensive than they were. And like, it makes totals go up a lot higher, I think, but yeah. And there's also inflation. Yeah. Jurassic Park holds a 91% on Rotten Tomatoes and is certified fresh. The audience score also sits at 91%. The site's consensus reads, Jurassic Park is a spectacle of special effects and lifelike animatronics with some of Spielberg's best sequences of sustained awe and sheer terror since Jaws. The film received fairly positive reviews. Roger Ebert gave the film three out of four stars, saying, The movie delivers all too well on its promise to show dinosaurs. We see them early and often, and they're indeed a triumph of special effects artistry. But the movie's lacking in other qualities that it needs even more, such as a sense of awe and wonderment, what the fuck was he watching, Mm. and strong human story values. Empire Magazine gave the film five stars and called it, quite simply, one of the greatest blockbusters of all time. That's a much better and more concise (laughs) review of this movie. Uh, To me, Mr. Ebert, and I know he obviously is not listening to this, um, it's filled with awe and wonderment. Well, yeah, and Roger Ebert (laughs) often gets it wrong the first time. He has to, like, publish a book ten years later to, like, make things make things right as we saw with alien yeah and i think it's funny that when we were talking about his review of jaws you know in our last episode that's what he praised jaws for he said it has all in wonderment but also really grounded human characters and almost like he doesn't think that you know there's strong enough human yeah. qualities in jurassic park I, mean, I feel like this has even better quality human quality than jaws personally yeah i mean but manufactured quality or whatever with the script, but it works. So. Yeah, well, if, yeah, well, this is film. Everything is manufactured. Yeah. So it won uh, many accolades after its initial release. At the Oscars, it won Best Sound, Best Sound Effects Editing, and Best Visual Effects. As a side note, at the same ceremony, Spielberg, editor Michael Kahn, and composer John Williams won Academy Awards for Schindler's List. I'm kind of surprised that Jurassic Park wasn't nominated for more, like even like editing or um, Best Picture even. 
Yeah, I, you know, I remember at the time being so impressed watching Jurassic Park after I saw it in the theater that I mentioned to my uncle, who's also a big film fan. I was like, I wouldn't be surprised if it weren't nominated for Best Picture because, you know, at, even at that age, I was obsessed with the Oscars. And he was like, oh, no, no, it would never. It would never, you know, as some sort of like cinema elitist or something. And it wasn't, you know, but. No, it would have. Yeah. Because the same studio was pitching and selling his as, as a Best Picture when and a director win for Schindler's List. So why would they try and cancel themselves out by putting Jurassic Park in for the same? So Universal as a student is trying to clean up. And that year, we'd have to look. But between Jurassic Park and Schindler's List, they probably did. Um, I assume, yeah. And um, I think that if we had today's rules at the Oscar with an expanded 10 10 movie best picture category, I would say that Jurassic Park would have been in there that particular year, along with Schindler's List. So at the BAFTAs, it won best special effects and it was nominated for best sound. It really cleaned up at the Saturn Awards with both wins and nominations. It won Best Director, Best Sci-Fi Film, Best Special Effects, and Best Writing. It was nominated for Best Actress, Laura Dern, Best Costumes, Best Music, Best Performance by a Young Actor for both Joseph Mazzello and Ariana Richards, Best Supporting Actors for both Jeff Goldblum and Wayne Knight. I'm wondering what won those. Yeah, I need to start looking these things up when I make some of these notes to (laughs) compare who actually won, you know? Yeah. But I kind of agree with that, you know, Laura Dern lamination, and we'll talk about that when we get to cast and characters, but I think she's especially good in this movie. She's always good. The AFI named Jurassic Park the 35th most thrilling movie. Empire Magazine has called it the sixth most influential film of the magazine's lifetime. In 2018, the film was selected to be included in the National Film Registry by the, li- by the Library of Congress as being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant, much like many of the films we're covering lately. The enormous success of Jurassic Park brought about Crichton's sequel novel, The Lost World, which would later become the first of five film sequels. The sixth sequel is scheduled for a June 2021 release. Every Universal Park in the world has some sort of ride or roller coaster attraction based on the franchise. There have been numerous video and board games, comic books, enough toys to fill Santa's sleigh several times over, not to mention imitator movies like Dinosaur from the Deep, Dinosaur Island, and Carnosaur, starring Laura Dern's mom, Diane Ladd. They were all released in the wake of this movie's success. Jurassic Park's biggest impact on subsequent films was a result of its computer-generated visual effects. Film historian Tom Schoen commented on the film's innovation and influence, saying that, In its way, Jurassic Park heralded a revolution in movies, as profound as the coming of sound in 1927. Many filmmakers saw Jurassic Park's effects as a realization that many of their visions, previously thought unfeasible or too expensive, were now possible. ILM owner George Lucas, realizing the success of creating realistic live dinosaurs by his own company, started to make the Star Wars prequels. Stanley Kubrick decided to invest in a pet project, AI Artificial Intelligence, to which he would later bring Spielberg to direct, and Peter Jackson began to re-explore his childhood love of fantasy films, a path that led him to Lord of the Rings and King Kong. So I think we have a lot of movies that a lot of people love that also had great success, To and they all have Jurassic Park to really thank for it. It really was you know, creative spark to a lot of people in Hollywood, and mm-hmm. it showed them what they could do with special effects. So why don't we uh, get into the movie a little bit and talk about uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, the movie? Oh, okay. Yeah. I guess so. I guess so. 
Jesus. We've got two prologues in this film, which is interesting, and uh, three major acts. But we'll start with those two prologues. Of course, the opening raptor attack and the foreshadowing of how dangerous those velociraptors are. And also just, I do want to note the amount of foreshadowing used in Jurassic Park is just amazing. Like they really set up like everything. Yeah. Nothing should come as a surprise to people if you're like totally paying attention to the movie. I know the screenplay passed a bunch of hands, you know, and but someone must have done some sort of meticulous work. And that part of it might be Crichton, you know, Uh, because he's he's the one that did the first script, you know, but it's it kind of went to Cap and like a couple of other people in between Cap and Crichton. Crichton in order to kind of get where it was. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of foreshadowing in here. And of course, uh, you know, the, the, I didn't expect that when I first watched this, I, I guess to open up like an actual horror movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, cause I mean the, the book opens up fairly similarly, like people have died on the Island. Right. But the movie itself is very intense right as it starts. Well, I think it's very, the book starts with the vacationers on uh, one of the neighboring islands. And it's the little dinosaurs that, that tear the, the child apart. And I think that's how the sequel starts. And they, they just right. brought that over. So they didn't want to add in, I think like children dying right at the start of this movie because, you know, a lot of children were going to be watching it. But yeah, a lot of things that happened in the novel eventually made its way into the sequel film. Yeah. A lot um, of stuff that they cut. Mm-hmm. But yeah. That opening scene where they're trying to like release the Raptor into its enclosure and just the sheer amount of men that they had around it, like armed guards. And it was a very careful procedure because they didn't want anything to go wrong just shows how dangerous they know these animals to be and what precautions that they need to take. Yeah. And I feel like any other director might not have done it the same way Spielberg did, because what he did was he really established it, not, not just by showing the amount of soldiers there and everyone holding guns, but really looking at their faces and how serious and somber they were and how nervous and anxious everyone looked. And he, Spielberg really does these establishing shots by not only showing the setting, but also going up close up to people's faces. Right. And so that's kind of like a really Spielbergian like fingerprint to me and uh, just really setting up a mood of a shot or a scene, I should say really, really well and quickly. Yeah. When that Raptor pulls that worker into its enclosure, right. And it's sort of, you can see like the, the torso and arms and head of the guy sticking out of it and it sucks him in. Right. I was thinking i was you know after i saw jurassic park i started to notice a lot of shots like that i saw spielberg and and kind of some behind the scenes uh directing that the scene and uh he's literally just like right there right behind the camera which is really close and he's going okay pull the guy in pull the guy in, pull it let go a little bit let go a little bit pull him in pull him in pull him in pull him in like every single thing and he's like look more worried look more worried be a little bit hopeful like just like everything like, <laughs> be a little bit hopeful. <laughs> yeah like he's like literally tell, like everything like he's uh he's a really good like actors director almost in a way i would i would assume is almost too controlling because like uh like on jeff goldblum's close-up shot when they reveal like later on in the story like the brachiosaurus or whatever mm-hmm. i saw a little bit behind the scenes where he's actually like telling jeff goldblum you know you're seeing this thing for the first time everyone's looking at it in awe and it's like and then and he, and something you would have thought would have been the actor's choice was Spielberg giving him a note while filming saying, and something strikes you as a little bit funny, but you don't know why. And Jeff Golden makes a little like nervous laugh while he's in awe at the dinosaur. And that's in the movie. And it was just, that's just comes to Spielberg just like that, you know, in, in these reaction shots for people. And that just gives it a little bit more of grounded reality when emotions are a little more complex than just you're in awe, you know? Well, he obviously likes to, he has a final vision of his movie in mind, right? He's a director who thinks about actors, who thinks about acting, story, and editing all at the same time while he's behind the camera. And so, I mean, 
I don't have a problem with directors being controlling of actors, like give them the space to, to do their craft, but it's okay to like push them in the right direction. And I mean, sometimes actors liked it sometimes don't. I yeah. Guess, I was just, I was uh, amazed that a lot of that stuff that our favorite ways of, you know, the way people deliver lines or, you know, just little things that they do in between lines could be, it seems obvious saying it out loud from a director <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> versus the actor making those choices. You know what I mean? Um, it's just interesting to me. Anyway, moving on. And our second prologue is, of course, the lawyer uh, visiting the dig uh, site where we we see the the amber mosquito foreshadowing. Yep. And we have um, the actor who would later go on to put, portray the mayor in uh, or the DA in Medium, whom I like very much. I just love Miguel Ferrer. But we also get a little bit of foreshadowing about the character of Hammond because he wasn't there uh, because he had to be at his daughter's divorce. Mm-hmm. It's just a kind of a throwaway, which tells me two things about Hammond. Family is more important to him overall. And number two, there's some hubris there that he doesn't care. He's so overconfident in what his creation is that he thinks it's going to kind of take care of itself. So there's kind of two things going on there. And this, both of those things kind of hold out to be true. And this lawyer is representing the investors that have paid money to fund this project, right? Mm-hmm. And I would assume that the investors know something about it, but maybe not a lot. It, it, like Hammond strikes me as a type of person who's very like, Show you me. know, close lipped about it, right? And he'll 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 release the spectacle when it's time, and he doesn't want people interfering, which is what this lawyer is doing, right? And it really starts the entire movie because he mentions that they want to have mm-hmm. you know some sort of famous scientist come and endorse the part. Yeah, and they really spared no expense at getting those those people there. <laughs> spared no expense. We need ice cream and scientists. Spare no expense. <laughs> Rocky Road. <laughs> Just basic vanilla? Fuck you. Where's the Rocky Road? Spared no expense. <laughs> so, and then we get to act, act one, which I like to call Welcome to Jurassic Park. Clever girl. <laughs> <laughs> so and that's where we get the the dig right in the intro to dr grant and dr sattler kind of doing their thing digging up and and uh they either have some visitors there like tourists kind of situation or other in, small investors you know and he has to scare the kid and we get that set up of his relationship with children and, and mm-hmm. we get that lovely scene where he's talking about evisceration via velociraptor to the gut to this this child essentially <laughs> it's so funny though like i really like that monologue where he's like terrorizing <laughs> that small child because honestly and i never really thought about this until this rewatch i was like what the hell is that kid doing on this dig I mean, like, everyone's out there just brushing shit and he's like oh that's like a scary chicken or something like that. <laughs> a scary turkey, whatever he says. And I'm like, you know what? I would have terrorized that small child too. Good for you, Dr. Grant. But he likes to do that because even in there in the survival situation, he pretends to electrocute himself on himself <laughs> later. <laughs> Which is also really funny to me. <laughs> but yeah, so John Hammond shows up and is essentially like destroying their dig when he arrives, blowing all the dirt back on top of the dinosaur bones. Yeah. And they run inside their trailer to find him and he's uncorking their celebration champagne. So, I mean, like if if I were in their situation, I've been like, motherfucker, like that's my booze and these my bones. <laughs> Who am the fuck are you? <laughs> Oh, but he explains who he is and he, you know, entices them to come to the park and sort of like give an approval or endorsement by funding their dig. And I thought that was interesting because I thought I remembered them saying, hey, want to see some real dinosaurs? That's kind of my my faded memory of the film. But no, it's he doesn't. He keeps things so close to the chest. He could have easily gotten them to come just by telling them that. 
but he wants he's such a showman he has to like mm-hmm. wait for that reveal because he gets like a cheap thrill out of it or a really expensive thrill <laughs> yes there no expense on thrills ice cream yeah. thrills scientists so it's like yeah i'm paying the bills and i'm gonna pay the bills for the next three years on your dig that's you know not gonna matter because we have real dinosaurs now but he doesn't Mm -hmm. tell that (laughs) so they come so when i was writing this synopsis i really wanted to keep the movies you know flow and i didn't want to say dinosaur right away right even Mm. though like going into the movie audiences knew that they were going to see dinosaurs right and like roger ebert says we see them early and often but they really like set up some of these like awe-inducing moments that we will talk about in just a couple minutes when they see dinosaurs for the very first time before they get to the island there is a pretty fun helicopter ride yeah (laughs) and we get to meet dr ian malcolm Played That's by right. the wonderful Jeff Goldblum, who is almost peak Goldblum in this movie. I would say, yeah, it's just like right around the time that Goldblum was like at his finest. Well, no, I'm talking like peak Goldblum as far as his personality. I'd say peak Goldblum is in Thor Ragnarok. He's nearly there. He's almost at peak Goldblum, but he's more Goldblum than he was in The Fly, but he's less Goldblum than he was in Thor Ragnarok. <laughs> he's aging like a fine wine. <laughs> I do love him in that movie, too. In fact, I love him in just about anything I see him in. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. And of course, we get more foreshadowing, right? And, uh, you know, on rewatch, I was like, really, are they doing this? Because I remember that scene, but I hadn't really connected the dots. And it's when they're all trying to, like, furiously, like, put their their seatbelts together when they're getting some, uh, you know, rockiness in the ride when they're trying to land on the island in the helicopter. And um, Grant doesn't find his other seatbelt. So he has to tie two female ends of the seatbelt together. Life finds hmm. a way, right? Oh, foreshadowing for sure. <laughs> We also get a glimpse into the character that Ian Malcolm is like, he's already starting to flirt with Dr. Sattler on this plane ride, which he continues to do throughout the movie. He's like completely schmoozy and like womanizing, but in a really charismatic way, right? Yeah. Not quite a predator, but a big flirt. (laughs) (laughs) So then of course we get the beautiful landing scene with uh, one of Hawaii's best waterfalls and probably one of the world's best waterfalls in the background. Of course, they're not supposed to be in Hawaii, but that's where they shot it. And then of course uh, the reveal, right? Which is just this big moment. I think it's been voted like by several different things, like one of the most magical moments in cinema history of them stopping the Jeep and, and finally seeing the dinosaur for the first time. And it's just such an amazing, iconic scene. See, this was cry number one for me on the rewatch of <laughs> I Jurassic got a little teary eyed too, and I was just like, yeah. "This still looks so good." The brachiosaur, uh, or the brachiosaurus, I should say. You know, it shows a little bit of CG age, but that shot is just so wonderfully done. You know, that it's uh, it's still incredible and kind of chill inducing to me. Yeah, I mean, because you he looks out across that vista and you see more than just brachiosaurus. You see yeah. other dinosaurs like drinking from the water and you know doing their things the and. Yeah, he's talking about herds and then, you know, Hammond starts to talk about the other dinosaurs they have, like really capturing their attention. And they're just like in such awe of the moment. They haven't really stopped to think about, you know, any sort of consequence that comes with having real life dinosaurs. They're just seeing something that they've been studying from bones only and making theories about their entire life. And that's the point is that this is yeah. something that they've been obsessed with and loved their whole lives. And they're finally seeing it for the first time and, and something they can actually see, smell, touch. And that would have been an impossibility before, you know, I'm 
I wouldn't be surprised if real paleontologists went to see Jurassic Park and started crying in that moment when they first saw the Oh, film. I can only imagine they did. I mean, because nobody gets to college and says, you know what, I'm going to be a paleobiologist or something, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, these are things that like characters like that were supposed to, I think, imagine that they've been obsessed with these things since childhood. And like to, to see something like that is super awe-inspiring. And, you know, it's just like the... Uh, the emotion, the music at that moment. He delivers that iconic line, Welcome to Jurassic Park. I mean, yeah, I was just like just weeping. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, and it's funny because um, we're going to talk a little bit more about our initial experience with the film later, but they really kept the dinosaurs close to the chest, just like Hammond would, right? The showman and Spielberg didn't allow any of the dinosaurs besides close up with their eyes and things like that in the trailers. And so everyone going to see this movie for the first time was experiencing that level of CG for the first time ever in their lives. Yeah. Right? And, I mean, the closest thing that we've seen in CG is in, like, a James Cameron film, you know, with, like, the metallic Terminator or the water in the abyss. You know, and, uh, you know, there had been, like, a, a CG character scene in, like, a Sherlock Holmes episode on TV or something, which is technically the first CG character. But this is really the only, like, and that wasn't photorealistic at all. It was super abstract. You know, like, this is the first time that we see modern CG ever in a movie, really. And uh, as, a, as a living, breathing creature. And it was just amazing and then after that we get to move on to a lot of exposition which the movie yeah. needs you know yeah so. and it's like I, I always say show don't tell but this is science right and so they have to mm-hmm. literally explain to you they can't like show dna splicing and frog shit and all this other stuff you know and so it was really really smartly done as part of the tour in a cartoon which was kind of an idea during pre-production they had Yep, this is part of my notes. It's actually the very first note that I took watching the movie. I was like, what a really brilliant way to get all this exposition and like deep science across to lay people quickly, effectively, and efficiently. Because that little cartoon character, you know, taught me things when I was a kid. And it it still sticks out in my mind just for the way he says dinosaur, you know, (laughs) like like I never have ever forgotten it in my life. And it really is like one of the first times that I realized like what DNA was. And I was like, what a smart move on Spielberg to do this. This is edutainment at its finest. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and then of course we got the lawyer. They they go into the lab scene and they can see through to the into the lab and the lawyer's like, is this autoerotica? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what that was as a kid and got, got caught it on this one. He's like, no, there are no animatronics. <laughs> Autoerotic, auto, autoerotica? No, there are no animatronics on Jurassic Park. Or people choking themselves for sexual gratification. <laughs> That may happen somewhere else. (laughs) We spared no expense on nooses. Uh, he also is thinking like a lawyer the entire time mm-hmm. and then lawyer and a business person because when they get off the ride and like push the seatbelts at the same time and he was just like are they allowed to do that I mean like <laughs> but yeah so we get to go meet some of the scientists who are creating these dinosaurs and um, you know we get BD Wong in there who's one of our most important gays and I mean always fun to see and he's in some of the sequels as well Mm -hmm. so he explains like exactly like you know what they're doing with the dinosaurs and how the precautions are being taken the fact that they are all genetically female when they are created and we get you know Malcolm's first you know dissension into the idea of Jurassic Park which is I think something that John Hammond didn't expect and certainly Gennaro didn't want Mm -hmm. at that point and I love the foreshadowing here a little bit and we're kind of maybe overusing that term but you know those eggs and those little baby dinosaurs are are really really cute and adorable until like you see Grant his his reaction to them telling him it's a velociraptor Mm -hmm. you know 
Because, yeah, it's cute and adorable when it's small, but it gets big real fucking fast, and <laughs> it'll get you like a child. They're lethal. They eight months. <laughs> and they're astonishing leapers. But... <laughs> so we move on to the lunch scene. They're all sitting down to eat before a tour of the park, and they're having this really deep ethical conversation about, you know, what it means to create life, and should you do it? And the repercussions that have come with it. So then they almost reluctantly go on the tour and the kids arrive, right? So we get to meet Mm -hmm. uh, Lex and Tim. Grandpa! (laughs) And he falls over on the stairs and breaks a hip. That's right. And then he has to spare no expense getting his hip replaced. So. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but of course it's like uneventful. You know, they stop by and it's like, yeah, how are you going to get the dinosaurs next to the fence? You know, if you're not, you know, later they put a goat out, you know, to try and get the T-Rex next to the fence, but it's not really doing much. And so they start (laughs) getting out of the cars and they come across this sick Triceratops, which is like the next magical moment in this film. Yeah. You know, and the actors all talk about that scene as something that, that they just love because they couldn't see. They couldn't see anyone working as the puppeteers. And there was like four guys working the eyes and the, the legs and the breathing and everything. And so they really got to interact with it like it was a living thing and act with it. And so they they all just absolutely loved filming that. That was cry moment number two for me on this rewatch <laughs> when he's like, he has his head to the stomach and he's like moving up and down with it. And I'm like, I, was, I started to tear up at that because it's again, another magical moment for these characters. And you're already really invested in who they are you've you've learned exactly who they are you're on board with them and you're just along for the ride but before they even get to that triceratops one of my favorite lines in jurassic park is spoken by jeff goldblum when he like taps on the camera and he's like um are you going to have any dinosaurs on your dinosaur tour <laughs> and then i love hammond's response which is like oh, i really hate oh, I, that man i really hate that man <laughs> it's so funny yeah, I mean, and this scene is also funny, too, because we get to see Laura Dern, like, go, you know, fucking elbow deep into dinosaur shit. And, I mean, it's just, it's a fun scene. It's fun to watch them interact with the dinosaur. And it's one of the first moments in the movie that we really get to see a full-life dinosaur up close. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I assume that, you know, this is one of those animatronic dinosaurs. Oh, yeah. Completely in camera. Yeah. So amazing. Just amazing. Yeah. So now uh, we're getting to Dennis Nedry's betrayal, you know, and uh, the hurricane and the power outage. That's right. He sets everything into motion. And Wayne Knight is so brilliant. And just like this particular moment in the movie, right, where he's like fumbling over his words and talking about getting snacks and arguing with Hammond about money and stuff. I mean, yeah, such a good moment for his first acting prowess, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just so awkward. (laughs) You know, but yeah, it's, you, you hate that character and he gets what's coming to him and everything else, but he's also kind of fun to watch, you know, and that's kind of some mm-hmm. of the best, you know, that you can get from a character like this is when they're actually fun to watch. You're not rooting for them, but it's almost like watching a stooge, you know, or something. So I, 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 I thought like when I watched this, when I was thinking about this movie, I was thinking that like he had initially like stolen stuff, but it was the hurricane, the hurricane that knocked out the power. <laughs> you just got so Southern there for a minute. <laughs> the hurricane. <laughs> you thought it was the hurricane that knocked the power yeah, out and not it, Nedry? Yeah, but apparently the hurricane was just, you know, for atmosphere. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, they needed to make it rainy, you know, to, to really create that mood. Well, and yeah, to create a sense of urgency for him to get to the docks. Right. Yeah. So when he is driving and he like crashes his car and he's trying to get it, you know, back on the road and he meets the Dilophosaurus, right? Am I saying that right? I'm not a paleontologist, so I don't, but uh, he, that's my favorite moment 
of a dinosaur kill in this movie, <laughs> right? Because it's such a neat dinosaur. And I don't think that that dinosaur actually no, existed. I think this is something up. that Crichton, yeah. Because as a kid, I was just like, I mean, I liked dinosaurs when I was a child. And when I read the book, I was like, I don't remember that fucking dinosaur. Well, okay. I think the dinosaur itself and the name is real. But I think like the fact that it has fins and and, and can spit mm-hmm. that shit, like all of that was like done in, in production. But yeah, I mean, it's just like, it's a really cute, almost like E.T. moment, right? Where he's like, it's just chirping at him and bobbing its head up and down. And he's like, oh, you're not so bad. I thought you were like one of your big brothers. And then it like opens its fills and spits that shit in his face and i was just like oh my god like when i was a kid i was floored watching that and it's still my favorite like kill in this movie gotta hit a red eye surprise (laughs) that dinosaur just spitting its gentleman's relish all over the place (laughs) (laughs) yeah i just love it i mean and that's like the moment that his plan dies because you get to watch that barbasol can just get covered in mud as he's being eaten to death in a car and it's just and to him it's all just about his skill and his smartness and he's just so you know cavalier about what's actually on the island right and he's so Mm -hmm. dismissive of it you know and it's it just feels that much better when he gets what's coming to him yeah i mean if he were killed by anything but a dinosaur i think that it would have like really cheapened that character yeah completely i think he died in an appropriate way we got to see a really cool dinosaur for the only moment that we see this dinosaur in this movie is it killing him Mm -hmm. you know yeah also practical, by the way, with its like fins coming out and everything else. Like they really did a really awesome mix between animatronic effects from Stan Winston and the CG. And they used animatronic or in-camera effects whenever they could, which, you know, makes the movie stand out in time even more. And we should also point out, too, that this is the first time in the movie that we really get to hear what the dinosaurs sound like in certain oh my ways. God, right. Yeah. And I know it's just like some chirping and clicking, but it sounds neat. You know, and like, it's just very impressive. Yeah, the amount of like sounds, we'll get more into some of the sounds later, but they got like dolphins having sex sounds for some of the raptors and stuff. And like, <laughs> yeah, like angry geese for, for others. And like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. I can't wait for this conversation because I feel like I'm going to crack up. That's good. And I think it's shaking its head. And that's in that particular scene was uh, the guy actually like recording the sound of his dogs shaking his head with a chew toy. You know? Love it. That's amazing. <laughs> I mean, that's some really good work. God. Yeah. But from there, we really move on into like the really horrific, intense moments of the movie. Act two, life finding a way to kill you. <laughs> that is an amazing title. <laughs> um, and the very first thing that life is finding a way to kill you with is a gigantic motherfucking Tyrannosaurus Rex. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, yeah. Uh when when they see the goat is gone, you know, and that thing just comes out of the it just they don't even waste any time. You know, they we do see those iconic ripples, you know, in the water, in the glass, right? And so mm-hmm. of course that's an iconic scene and everything else. And of course there's a story behind that that might may or may not be in my fun facts. The build up to the Tyrannosaurus Rex appearance is really phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, he takes his time in doing it, like seeing the water ripple in the glasses and the the boy putting on the, you know, night vision goggles and sort of being able to look and the girl's like, Where's the goat? What happened to the goat? <laughs> you know, and <laughs> then the leg falling on top of the sun roof. Right if she says it too. Yeah. <laughs> I actually said, and then there it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ask a That's stupid right question. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> 
but then it appears and we know you know that's out it's out of its fence and this is the first time that the characters realize that they are in complete danger because that fence yeah. is gone and i mean Maybe I'm just not suspending my disbelief enough, but I don't think that that kind of voltage is going to stop a fucking T-Rex anyway. So. Yeah, I don't know. Who knows? But the thing just kind of walks through it like it was nothing, you know. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and it just goes straight for the fucking kids. You know, of course, she's, uh, you know, sh- shooting the, the flashlight and the characters, Grant mm. and the audience are all screaming at her to turn it the fuck off. <laughs> right her brother's also screaming he's like turn it off turn it off so and it starts to smash the fuck out of that car and um you know we get to see another death right so yeah Mm -hmm. so grant gets out and tries to stop that t-rex and get it back into its paddock and it's working until malcolm comes out and he just copies him he's like hey hey yeah grant was (laughs) standing still waving the flare for it to mm -hmm. look at it and then throws the flare versus Malcolm literally got out, was running around in circles or whatever, and then threw it. And it, <laughs> oh, and it was like, yeah. and, and it just kept following him. And of course that happened. But thankfully he did not get killed because we still like him because he's Jeff Goldblum. That's correct. And he has to come back for the sequel. So, But a lot of stuff happens here, the kind of rapid succession, you know, all of that stuff. And then, of course, the car kind of goes over and Tim is still in the car. It's stuck in the tree. They have to like escape the car. <laughs> twice going down the wall mm-hmm. and then from going down the tree car lands on them and i it was, i remember with the biggest laugh during that movie is when he goes well we're back in the car again <laughs> that little kid i know he's so good it's a funny funny moment it was a really high tense uh series of scenes right and then it kind of mm-hmm. breaks that tension instantly for a breath and i think that's really important it was expertly timed yeah i think that spielberg again is really good at moments like that too he knows how to like ratchet the tension and then bring it back down so you can enjoy yourself for Mm -hmm. a minute too um we also get a really good scene around this part where muldoon and dr sattler come to investigate and rescue everybody it's too late obviously but they find dr malcolm and they find Gennaro's body so they know that people are dying and they go to investigate the car when they find it. And then they're chased by the Tyrannosaurus Rex. Oh. And the, I mean, it's a really great moment in faster, this movie just faster. to see that, <laughs> to see that dinosaur just running after them. It's terrifying. And Laura Dern's performance where she's screaming, shit, shit. <laughs> I mean, I assume she's saying shit. It could be shift. I don't know if she's giving an order or something, but I like to think of it as shit because that's exactly what I would be saying at that particular moment. Yeah. So it's just, it's terrifying. And then it abruptly ends. Like they are going faster than dinosaur and it's like, okay, oh, oh well. And like makes a left turn and walks away. Yeah. <laughs> so. I think the T-Rex, they said earlier, even Hammond said, um, the clocks, the T-Rex at 32 miles an hour. And obviously the, the Jeep mm-hmm. can go faster than that. Right. So they, they were safe, but it was, it's in a pretty intense moment. But that T-Rex still today looks so good in these scenes it does and it's raining and it's just uh wrecking everything in its path so everything in the shot had to be seen as though the the t-rex was actually there and so that that tree splitting in half that the jeep has to drive under you know that was all and pulled out of the way that was all done you know in camera you know assuming that they were going to get a working t-rex you know by the time this thing hit audiences yeah it, it looks amazing it, i mean it, to me it holds up right like i i found no flaws in that particular scene at all and there's so many good shots too you know the eye through yeah. the window 
with the flashlight as an iconic shot. The shot of the the giant T-Rex foot hitting the mud pile and, mm-hmm. and, you know, splatting it down or whatever with them watching. And it's always with a character looking at it happening, too. You know, so you're kind of watching it with their eyes. So many good moments. Yeah, you're definitely along for the ride with these characters completely, like from start to finish in this movie. And that's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, we get that really good uh, Brachiosaurus sneeze effect in this part. Yeah, yeah, also another voted upon magical moment with them seeing all the Brachiosaurus, mm-hmm. you know, in the distance, you know, a moment of calm for them, much needed. And I mean, just for people who don't know what to call it, they'd say like Vegisaur and Meat-Eating Metasaurus or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. So we get some new words to say. Vegisaurus. Vegisaurus. Is it a, is it a <laughs> Meta? Meteosaurus. <laughs> I like I like that character a lot too. Yeah. Well, we get to have some quiet moments in this particular section of the movie as well, including a really good scene between Hammond and Doctor Sattler in the dining room. Yeah, she's made her way back after the rescue of uh, Malcolm. You know, and he's sitting there eating all the ice cream because it was gonna melt. <laughs> He doesn't know what else to do. He's got like three gallons of ice cream in front of him too, you know? So I'm just (laughs) like, that that could be me on any given Tuesday. But I mean, (laughs) yeah, but he's, he's trying to tell her, you know, this kind of sets up the tragedy of his character, you know, trying to show that he was trying to create something, you know, for his children and his grandchildren and, and for the world and for the world. Yeah. And he's very upset about it. And of course, Sattler has to be like, they're out there and people are dying, you know, and you've got to, you've got to deal with that time right now is it's not the time to think of lost dreams but to think of the people you love yeah she's like you gotta stop your pity party you know like no no more of this but he really does have a really interesting talk with her and monologue about his flea circus and like his hopes and dreams as a younger person up to who he is now and i mean we we've always gotten an idea that hammond wants to share all these things with everyone throughout the movie because when Gennaro was talking about we can charge like thousands of dollars a day and he was like absolutely not you know everybody has the right to come and see these animals well we could have a coupon yeah. day <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I mean I think it's at that moment that Hammond sort of like switches gear thanks to Dr. Sattler and he's like yeah you know what we have to find a way to like get this park back online save these people and save ourselves and it's just a, sort of a turning point in the movie and from there we get to go on to uh, Grant and the kids you know in the daytime and seeing more dinosaurs yeah and they find the dinosaur eggs right so Grant finds those and he's like oh shit you know they're they're breeding out here they found a way life uh, found a way <laughs> uh. <laughs> that's right he finds those dinosaur eggs they talk about you know amphibian dna again so we, you know everything that we learned back at the visitor center where you know we have to recall for this part of the movie it's quick and brief but it sort of like wraps up any sort of hole and shows that life has uh, found a way you're right <laughs> <laughs> you know and they make their way to the open fields and we see that giant herd of gallimimus <laughs> I had to look that up. Gala, Gala, Galamimus. <laughs> Galamimus. And that still looks really good. I, I know I keep saying that, you know, and it sounds like I'm sucking the ever holy shit out of this movie's dick, but. <laughs> out of its CGI it dick. It does. It looks really good. It's a moving camera, <laughs> you know, with CG creatures. And even, you know, films after this had a hard time doing that. And it's still convincing. Yeah, I completely agree. I like I like that part in the movie a lot, too. Because it also shows that even dinosaurs that don't pose a sort of like, you know, limb-tearing threat can also be threatening to them. They're caught in the middle of this, like, herd running in a stampede format, and they have to, like, 
save themselves and yet the t-rex is still there and so there it also shows that they have to avoid this t-rex it's really like right behind them the entire time yeah and it also like i I hear or see memes around about this movie about how all they'd have to do to make it work is just do the you know the veggiesauruses right don't make any of the velociraptors or the t-rexes or anything just make the ones that you know we could kind of live with in a more you know they're not going to be hunting us you know outright but I mean, like <laughs> anyone that's gone to Africa or anything is going to tell you like some of the most dangerous things are like the elephants, right? Because like one wrong step or, you know, one angry move and you're going to create, you know, any a really easy death situation, right? If that Brachiosaurus at the beginning of the of this movie had just like stumbled. Yeah, I know. <laughs> characters would just be like dead. <laughs> And it wouldn't have thought of anything of it, you know. Just, the whole fucking Jurassic <laughs> Park itself is completely dangerous for everybody who steps foot in it, worker or not. And yeah, it's just there's so much like that can happen in all these situations. And you got to think like these are just a handful of people coming to visit the park on like some sort of like soft open. And <laughs> I mean, what's it going to be like when there's thousands of people in the park and things go wrong? And we get to see that in other sequels. So, I mean, do you remember the thing about a couple years ago about Disney World and uh, the alligators that were living in the. Oh, by the hotel area, right? Yeah. yeah that people. <laughs> People were going into water that they shouldn't have been in, really, and being eaten and hurt by alligators. It's just frightening, too. Good Lord. Yeah. But um, so this is also the point in the movie where the park is coming back online. They've tried everything they can to get past Nedry's computer hacking. And Sam Jackson hates that hacking shit. And yeah. so, uh, 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 you didn't say the magic word. Uh, uh, please. Uh, and, the, and the first, uh, probably his first use of a GIF in cinema. Oh, it's right. <laughs> this movie's just doing everything. Because we don't think anything of it now. But back then it was like, oh, he's got a cute little animation of himself. And that was kind of a new thing. Oh, the, so the, we have a whole conversation we should have about the technology. And it's like, oh, it's a Unix system. You know, and uh, oh, it's an interactive CD-ROM. You touch the screen, it takes you to whatever you want. It's like we've all got, you know, those things in our pockets now. You know, it's just But at the time, I mean, as a fucking 13-year-old, 14-year-old kid, I'm like, ooh. (laughs) But it's like it wasn't an interactive CD-ROM, just a fucking touch screen with a hard drive. You know, it's like (laughs) calling it the wrong thing. I don't think I really noticed that she said that before it caught on. But I was like, there's no CD in there. It's just already there. (laughs) It's a Unix system. I know this. It's the software that's different. Like, what are you talking about? Like, it didn't even make sense at the time. She's a hacker. Anyway, she's a child hacker. Childlike hacker. (laughs) But we hate this hacker bullshit. (laughs) Well, he's dead. He said that and he died. He died for it. So, yeah. Well, he sort of sacrifices himself. He's like, this is my plan. We've rebooted everything. It's working, but I have to go do one more step. And he heads off and doesn't come back. (laughs) So clearly they go Mm -hmm. look for him. And this is when the new clear and present danger of Jurassic Park sort of like shows itself in this, the Velociraptors. Because mm-hmm. when they shut that down, it let them out. Because up until that point, Nedry hadn't even let them That's out. That's right. He knew how terrible these dinosaurs were, and he had to make sure that he made it, you know, safely to the boat, which he didn't. You know, he discounted some of the other, you know, animal life out there. But Muldoon, mm-hmm. that's the first thing he asks when the power starts to go out. Like, what about the Velociraptor paddock? And they're like, no, that's still electrified. And he's like, phew. And then when you get out there, they're like, oh, just kidding. Here they are. They're out and about. <laughs> so, and we did it. Yeah. Oops. 
But then we get that slasher like moment, right? Like straight out of a slasher movie, you know, or aliens or something where she's trying to escape those, those raptors when she's, you know, trying to, she turns on the power and, you know, she finds this severed arm, you know, um, Samuel Jackson's severed arm. And, and it really is kind of like a little slasher movie kind of inside this, this larger adventure film. Yeah. I mean, it goes to show you that these animals are not just exactly hunting to eat. They are hunting because they want to kill you and tear your body limb from limb. And she's so like relieved when she like feels that touch and looks down and see his hand. She's like, Oh, Arnold, Mr. Arnold. And then she, this is a severed arm. And she's like, eh, you know, <laughs> And then and she's being chased by a raptor. It's harrowing. And she like, looks. she made a really good final girl that she was like crying and screaming and everything else. And at the same time, she's like such a strong character. You yes. Know? I mean, I could, I, I agree. I mean, she's very strong. She's smart. I, she's obviously very active. She knows how to get out of a bad situation and quickly. And then we also get to see some like quiet, scared moments from her as an actress too. When she sees Grant outside the visitor center, once he's arrived with the kids after she's put everything back online and very quietly, she's like, run. <laughs> right. I mean, like it's good. It's a good performance. Yeah. Meanwhile. Yeah. The kids are inside and uh, there's too many Raptors in the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> what an impressive kitchen that is too like i was watching it this time and i was like oh i'd cook in there i'm like they got everything and lots of space i'm like god yeah i mean i like this scene it's it's pretty terrifying mostly because i mean this is the first time the kids have been put in danger by themselves there's no adult to take care of them and so they have to rely on their own prowess to like save themselves and i think that you know lex really steps up in this particular mm-hmm. situation yeah. in the movie she saves her brothers by distracting the raptors she's mm-hmm. fairly clever she's a clever girl when she she's <laughs> yeah. a clever girl but another thing i really like about the scene is the details that it puts into it you know the the breath of the raptors on the window before it comes in yes. their ability to open the handle was a little cartoony but still you can kind of see that they really kind of awkwardly did it the clicking of their mm-hmm. claws on the ground almost like morse code communication between each other the sounds they make again with the with the sound um design for this film which is just quite amazing i just especially hearing it in my surround sound that i have at home i was just like holy shit i don't remember that didn't remember the sound being this good and this effective and this believable it really is believable too because you think that those raptors are talking to each other just making these sounds and the way that their heads move and like affirmation of what the other one just said to them and you know in certain parts like it really is showing how these dinosaurs are a team and they're working together and they can problem solve and they're just like really fucking dangerous. Mm-hmm. And like these kids being in peril is really nerve wracking for most of that particular scene. So by that point they kind of run out of the kitchen, I think, and they kind of are met up again with Grant and Sattler, you know, and they all have to escape the, the Raptors at that point. And we get the, you know, they're escaping down the stairs and they have to like, jump down like the the giant t-rex bones fossil bones that are in there and uh we get that final raptor confrontation with a deus ex machina a la tyrannosaurus rex moment (laughs) that's right tyrannosaurus rex machina they're on those bones and they're the bones split apart so again they're sort of separated and then they fall to the ground the raptors are there t-rex comes in and they're able to escape because you know t-rex has been the hero of the day the t-rex was like this big shadow of the film this big villain you know but it turned out to be the hero of the film in a way right and it's this giant just this perfect hero shot that final shot of the of the t-rex 
you know, throwing the raptor into the bones, the bones fall to the floor. It turns around in like this gigantic hero moment and it roars as the banner falls in front of it. <laughs> when dinosaurs ruled the earth or whatever. Yeah. It's one of the most iconic shots in, in cinema history. <laughs> when, when I saw it, I was like, holy shit, I forgot how fucking good this was. That was another cry moment for me on this rewatch. <laughs> so it's roaring, <laughs> that banner is falling, they're fleeing to safety. And I was like, oh, <laughs> I'm just like, God, it's just super pretty to look at. And I know that like in any like deus ex machina situation it's sort of just like you know here it is and a lot of times i'm like oh that's real cheap or whatever but it really works it's very effective in this movie that just save the day and the t-rex is not so bad after all right misunderstood dinosaur so is the bigger fish Hmm. (laughs) the little arms trying to can't even reach that raptor to get it off i I started to watch its little arms flail (laughs) around like what has evolution done to you (laughs) so they're picked up by hammond and malcolm and they flee to the helicopter and you know we get that moment where everyone's being ushered in but hammond walks forward and takes that one last look at the island and the world that he created and knowing that this is the end of it Mm -hmm. and he's pushed into the helicopter by grant and they take off so and we get pelicans for some reason and we get pelicans yeah so, yeah, I mean, I, the character has come full circle at that point because he's comfortable with children when he first wanted to slash one with a bone. And now maybe he wants to have one of his own. He gets some eye contact with his, I assume that Dr. Sattler is his girlfriend. Yes, yeah. He's a member of yeah. Malcolm asks Grant, you know, because oh, he's, he's like, like yeah, yeah, we are. we're together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, like, they've escaped. He has experienced so much on the island and learned, and his career in life will never be the same just based upon the two days that he's been there. And he's watching these birds, and he knows that some of the theories that he himself had made in his career are sort of true. And it's just a really good, quiet moment to sort of, like, end the movie with. So let's get into some of the characters and the casting choices for Jurassic Park because I I love a lot of these characters and I like the actors who play them. Really good cast. It's just synonymous with the movie at this point. And I know that throughout the franchise, like some people have returned and some people have not, and they're coming back for the new ones because it was just announced uh, today or recently that Sam Neill is going to be returning for the next oh installment God. of Jurassic Park, playing his character, Alan Grant. So let's talk about Alan Grant first, I guess, because he really is the main character of this movie. He has the you know most the longest arc. He makes changes. Like he's the main character, the protagonist of Jurassic Park. And he does a really good job. Although the role was initially offered to William Hurt, oh, who turned it down after reading the script for whatever reason, Stupid. and Harrison Ford. Oh, <laughs> so and who didn't think of the the role was for him? <laughs> and upon viewing the film. Agreed. Still, that it wasn't the role for him. So I'm hoping that he means that it's like a little too close to home with Indiana Jones. I mean, the character yeah, I mean, looks like, like him. He already has a character like that. Like, yeah, yeah the the whole get up looks so Indiana Jonesy to me. And it, I don't think audiences would have been able to escape how close it was to that character. And I'm, I'm glad it wasn't Harrison Ford because I would have just been thinking he's Indiana Jones. He's Indiana Jones, you know? Yeah, it's like they went and saw Indiana Jones's endorsement for the movie. I mean, yeah, it would have been a little too close to other films. 
And I mean, I hope that Spielberg recognized that as well. But I think that Sam Neill does a very good job in this movie. I like Sam Neill when I see him in things that he's in. I really enjoy him in In the Mouth of Madness, and I really enjoy him in, um, oh my God, I was going to say Deep Impact, but that's not it. What's that? That movie? That movie that I like so much, sci-fi horror. In the Mouth of Madness? Event Horizon. Oh, yeah. Like he's especially creepy in Event Horizon mm-hmm. and has some of like the bloodiest moments in that movie, Revolver and Sam. Can Neal. you great. see? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he's good in this movie and it's fun to watch him, you know, change throughout the film when he's like terrorizing that child at first and then having a practical joke with the electric fence and the other kids. I mean, like he's just a fun character and a good actor. Well, it's a really good portrayal too, I think, because he also gets these these moments where he has to really kind of like almost a stoic kind of figure, right? And then he gets those moments of levity where he kind of straight faces, you know, scaring the shit out of kids. But at the same time, like those kids were like shaking like leaves and saying, you know, the lawyer, like he left us. He left us because the lawyer did. He just first thing jumped out of the car the kids were in and you know, went to his death in the bathroom or whatever. And Sam Neill has to kind of take them by the shoulders, look him in the eye and say, but that's not what I'm going to do, you know, despite his, his issues with kids, you know, he is their hero in a very real way. Well, and I think that Alan Grant, as far as the movie is concerned, at least at the beginning is scientists first and everything else second. Right. I, I kind of get the idea that his work is really his life's meaning and what he does. And it's very evident throughout the movie. That's how he feels. Um, even in comparison to his counterpart, which is Dr. Ellie Sattler, played by Laura Dern, right? I think that she also has moments like that, but she's just a little bit more grounded in like real life. I feel that she has she has something else going on in her world aside from like paleontology digs and in all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, she obviously likes kids, wants kids. She's trying to force those children to go ride with him in the car, right? <laughs> she's like, she told me to ride with you because it would be good for you. And I mean, like, that's just hilarious to me. And she was perfectly cast. And she was actually Spielberg's first choice, although Robin Wright was also offered the the role and turned it down. I think Robin Wright would have done a good job. I like Robin I mean, Wright. I, I like Robin Wright. So yeah, I think that she would have done a good job in this movie too. But I am always so impressed when I see Laura Dern on screen and anything that she's in. She really is a phenomenal actor. And I'm so glad she finally got an Oscar this year for her Marriage work in Marriage Story. Mm-hmm. I mean, because she was phenomenal in that movie. I think she's really great in this. When she got that Saturn Award for Best Actress, I'm like, yeah, she deserves it. I mean, I know that it's a genre award, but this is a genre movie. And I mean, I think that some of the, some of the lines and some of the way that she reacts to things is great. Like, she's very definitely a good scream queen, you know, at certain moments of this movie. She's just perfect, perfectly cast. Yeah. And so self-sufficient. Yes. I mean, as, as a contained character and her performance of it, like, I think that she doesn't waste any time on screen. I think we fully understand her emotions and the plot and the environment from just her facial expressions and her movements and things like that. We get to know her character deeply just based upon how she, like, grabs onto a branch and swings her way into, like, safety, you know? I mean, she's a very efficient character, and it's just fun to watch. Well, I like also her and Dr. Grant you know, their relationship because it's very much like an equal partnership. He is, mm-hmm. you know, she, if she's going to stay with the, uh, tri- she's like, I'm going to stay with the Triceratops and he doesn't be like, well, why don't you come with me? He's just like, are you sure? Yeah. 
you know, are you okay? And, you know, they just do their own thing. And that's why it's not so overtly obvious to people like, you know, Dr. Ian Malcolm, Jeff Goldblum's character, that they're together. So, and I, th- I think maybe we can move into Ian Malcolm at this point, too, played <laughs> by the incomparable Jeff Goldblum. Although Jim Carrey apparently had a really surprisingly impressive audition <laughs> and nearly got the part, but Jeff Goldblum was just too perfect. I can't see that. I don't, I mean, because he's supposed to be some sort of like schmoozy womanizer or whatever. And I just don't see Jim Carrey doing that. I see Jim Carrey being like a funny mathematician, you know, like that seems like a separate movie altogether. Well, apparently like they've gone out of their way to say that Jim Carrey did a really good uh, audition for this, which is, you know, I was just like, what? Okay. I mean, obviously around, you know, in the nineties, later in the nineties, Jim Carrey got his, turn and early 2000s at some more dramatic roles with you know um you know eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and mm-hmm. um truman show majestic yeah i mean yeah he, he's had his share of like dramatic roles and i just think that him playing this character would have played up the funny a little bit more than jeff goldblum did i mean jeff goldblum's hilarious in this movie but it's super subtle it's very subtle comedy that's very like verbally driven like he knows how to deliver a line in this and I mean, but honestly, it's just like Jeff Goldblum being Jeff Goldblum, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you hire Jeff Goldblum, you're going to get a lot of us and, you know, repetitive, mm-hmm. you know, phrasing, you know, with your script. You just have to understand life uh, finds a way. <laughs> Are you going to have any dinosaurs on your dinosaur tour? <laughs> <laughs> But he's good in this movie, and I think that he really became a fan favorite, you know, and that's pretty obvious because he's back in the sequel to the movie, Mm -hmm. right? And I can't remember in the book, I think his character dies in the book, and then his character is brought back to life magically for the sequel novel. Yeah, okay. So he did bring him back? Yeah, so Crichton wrote him into the book. He was a character in the book, and I'm like, no, that can't happen, (laughs) you know, but... But here it is. There you know. it is. <laughs> Ian Malcolm again. But yeah, he's he's great in this movie. He has some of the best like funny lines, one liners. He's talking about children with Dr. Grant. He's like, Do you have any children? He's like, Oh yeah, I love kids, right? Mm-hmm. Three of them. He's like, Are you married? Occasionally. Yeah. <laughs> 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 he's just super relatable and likable. <laughs> just a good character. But you know, one of my favorite characters in the film is actually John Hammond. Uh, you know, the tragic role of, of John Hammond, played by the wonderful yeah. Richard Attenborough, um, who, of course, is a director, you know, an Oscar winning director himself. Um, I believe he won his Oscar mm-hmm. for Best Directing and Picture for Gandhi. Yeah, he did. I mean, he that was sort of his masterpiece of, of d- direction, I think, is Gandhi. And I, th- and I think Spielberg actually lost to him uh, for whatever movie his was out for and uh, ended up getting to direct him in this. I think Gandhi won the same year that The Color Purple was up for Best Picture when Spielberg mm. famously lost everything. Like, Color Purple won nothing that it was nominated for. And it was sort of leading the pack mm. in nominations that year. So it's uh, surprising when that happens. But John Hammett, I think he just he just did a really good job of having to juggle all these kind of things at the same time, you know, being a showman and then, you know, also having all of this love for his mm-hmm. grandchildren, but also being kind of ignorant to his effect on nature in a way and overconfident, you know, and then just seeing in his face at the end, you know, the resignation and the sadness of, yeah, I've agreed that this is, this is not something that's viable either. Because he has to wrestle with all of that, his character. I mean, sure, he feels guilty that people are put in peril, and not just people, but his grandchildren. And he also feels sad that he's watching 
<clears throat> what is a probably multi-billion dollar park that he's creating just crumble around him and knowing that people are dead and ultimately it's his responsibility he invited these people here and look what happens right he didn't cause the park Mm -hmm. systems to fail but he also didn't have the right people put in place you know i mean like at the end of the day he's responsible for these people's death and he's gonna have to live with that for the rest of his life and more than likely you know, he can see his career sort of just ending. There's no way in the world that he can bounce back from this financially or emotionally. And I mean, it is heartbreaking that final scene where he's just standing there outside the helicopter, just looking over his creation and having to leave it, right? And let it go do its own thing or be destroyed. He doesn't know what's going to happen, right? So, I mean, mm-hmm. he oftentimes is, you know, called out for playing God in this movie. And I think that he sort of has a godlike reaction to having to leave his creation behind sort of like what god did right you know i created the world and now we're gonna let let it do its thing and that's where he's at well you know ultimately you see that he you know ambition was a part of it but he didn't do it for his own ambition he did it for love you know you know and to give the world something to give his grandchildren his children something yeah family is very important to him and that's also very obvious it just it's an extra layer to his character which is a really fully formed character in this movie so it would have been so easy to go like the aliens route and give us a Burke, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. bear no expense. There's a dollar value associated with this park, you know, and then Alan Grant has to say, let's nuke it from orbit. You know, it's <laughs> the only way to be sure. Yeah. So, but yeah, he does. I mean, he says that line a lot, right? He never really tells you what the expense is. They just spared no expense. Like, well, yeah, yeah. this man is in ruin. Essentially. And we'll go into that uh, expense later. I actually have a tally of how expensive this park would be for later on. Oh, that's super intriguing. So we also have Robert Muldoon, who plays like the lead game warden, the guy in charge of these dinosaurs and overseeing the way that they are kept and secured. And he's played Clever by girl. Clever Girl, played by Bob Peck. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I thought he did a great job. You know, he just... He, with what he had, he did he did just fine. You know, he, this is a bunch of uh, smaller parts like him and Samuel L. Jackson as Ray Arnold, you know, hold on to your butts, uh, Dennis Nedry, you know, and of course the lawyer played by Donald Gennaro, you know, the blood-sucking lawyer. But they're all so expertly cast in their small roles and they have a lot of one-liners between them. You know, is it heavy? Yeah, then it's expensive. Put it back. Yeah. <laughs> just a lot of each of them has their own little one-liners that kind of stand the test of time. We could charge one thousand a day, two thousand a day, and people will pay it. <laughs> 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 yeah, I uh, I like uh, the character of Muldoon. I've been like this. There's, there's two two male characters in this movie that are running around wearing shorts for the ent- almost entirety <laughs> of the film, right? So we have Robert Muldoon as a game warden who looks like he should be in shorts, right? Like it fits him. And then we have Gennaro, the lawyer, walking around in shorts, but a long sleeved Oxford with a tie. And I'm like, yeah. you deserve to be eaten for wearing that fucking outfit, man. I mean, I didn't on. notice what he was wearing until he was on the toilet, and I was like, is he naked? No, he's just shorts. <laughs> It's ridiculous. I was like, of course you're dead. Look what you got on. And uh, Ray Arnold, uh, played by Samuel L. Jackson. This was before Samuel L. Jackson was really a huge uh, actor. Yeah. Like, before he, he got big. Yeah, because I 
can't remember seeing Sam Jackson in things before this. I mean, not, not really, but I think yeah, he got big in the later nineties and I think he was featured so heavily in the trailer and throughout the movie. And he's got, he says, hold on to your butts more than one time, right? He got his little catchphrase going on. It's a memorable character. He is so expertly like acting when he is screaming at the computer screen. I believe that he's frustrated by everything that Dennis Nedry had set up, you know? And mm-hmm. it's just like, he's good. He's good in this movie. It's proves again Samuel Jackson is like perfect at his craft he's a phenomenal actor and of course we've already talked about Wayne Knight as Dennis Nedry the the betrayer um and Spielberg had seen him in Basic Instinct and waited for the credits to roll wrote his name down specifically so that he could have him in uh, Jurassic Park I have not seen Basic Instinct in a very long time I need to revisit that movie for sure but I mean so I've, I've never seen it oh really oh I mean it's it's good you know what I mean but Wayne Knight would famously go on to play a character in Seinfeld that people would recognize him from. So, I mean, I Seinfeld probably, I think, got started like really quickly after Jurassic Park hit the screens, right? So it wasn't too long afterward. Yeah. But I think that most people these days would recognize him as Newman and not Dennis Nedry. Yeah. So. And then last but not least, we've got these kids and they did such a phenomenal job. I can't say either one did better than the other because they're both just so great. Um, of course, we've got Tim Murphy uh, played by Joseph Mazzello. And the ages and roles of the siblings were actually switched in the movie from the book because Spielberg specifically wanted to work with with uh, Joseph Mazzello, probably after seeing Radio Flyer, but also because he had auditioned for a role in Hook and was so good that, you know, he, but he was ultimately too young. So Spielberg promised him that he'd work with him in a future film. It also added a, a subplot of Tim being obsessed with uh, dinosaurs and looking up to Grant. So it worked out. Which was a really good subplot. Like, I, I really enjoyed that sort of like simpatico relationship that they developed throughout the movie, especially when they're looking at um, the Gallimimus and Grant has to refer to Tim. He's like, what are those called? And he like taps him on the head. Like even a, a paleontologist is having trouble and he's like, oh, here it is. Like this boy clearly like knows these animals and he has read books by people other than Dr. Grant and we'll call him out on some shit too. And he was like, well, I read this other book and it was way thicker than yours. <laughs> and like, like the kids, like you said, are really good in this movie. Ariana Richards, who plays Lex is also great. Like she has really good moments of looking terrified when she's holding that jiggling jello in the spoon, right? Like that's a really good moment for her. And she gets some like, you know, some action moments where she gets to be a hero. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like efficiently, she knows how to, you know, work the computer system in order to get everything back online. Yeah. That switcheroo let the, the you know, the girl be, you know, the the technically inclined hacker, you know, rather than the, the book smart, you know, person so i liked the switch she worked in, in multiple ways here spielberg was watching um the auditions and she was the only girl whose scream woke up his uh sleeping wife who came running in to see if their kids were all right so she was hired wow oh my god <laughs> yeah she does have a, a very impressive scream uh for some reason i had convinced myself that joseph mazzello was in lorenzo's oil but that's a different child i just had to look it up yeah <laughs> yeah no i think he was the younger brother in radio flyer yeah he's in radio flyer and- from elijah wood Hmm. he's also in a river wild which i haven't seen in a long time either well he's still acting and he actually played one of the band members of queen in the the bohemian rhapsody movie that just came out and like they uh his imdb profile has a like a recent picture of him and he looks pretty hot (laughs) so 
way to grow up there but he's also like the kid that couldn't die in this movie <laughs> like he gets electrocuted he like falls off a cliff falls down a tree the car lands on him you know like <laughs> yeah when the bones fall from the ceiling he's in the most perilous position for the bones like everyone else sort of gets to escape a little bit but he's almost impaled by a rib you know i mean yeah this kid is like constantly almost dying <laughs> this movie <laughs> Jeez. But I mean, oftentimes I will see kids in movies, especially horror movies, and sometimes it's hit or miss at like how good their performance is. And I have said before, and I stand by this, that I think that good child performances usually are, you know, a accolade to the director. I think if a director can get a good performance out of a child, they've really done their job. And so I think that Spielberg made excellent casting choices. We've already talked about how he sort of led adult actors into thinking things and acting a certain way. And I don't think it's a far step to think that he did the same thing for the kids, right? No, in fact, I was watching uh, some of the behind the scenes and the kids were talking, the grown-up kids, and that, that, that boy is actually only two years younger than me. And um, he was talking about how, how Spielberg would constantly play games with them in between takes. And, you know, while they were playing a game, he'd ask them like a note about the, the upcoming scene and what they thought. And so they really felt like they were part of the decision making process. And if they wanted to try something, they would and it would make their way into the movie. You know, some of the jokes and something like that and some of the reactions. And so they really felt a part of it. And I feel like, um, you know, that added a lot of the realism to their performance because they were just so invested. They weren't just taking direction. They were a part of it and they were part of making it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Spielberg, they, they say, don't ever direct kids or, or animals, right? But Spielberg definitely does not shy away from working with kids. Or fake animals. So, I mean, <laughs> he's pretty he's pretty masterful at those those fake animal movies. Or creature movies in general, you know? But yeah, Spielberg also, he, he likes to have kids in his movies. And I think that's really smart because it's a good way for children to go watch the movies, to create memories of Spielberg movies like we all have throughout our lives. I mean, if you weren't, you know, a super fan of Jaws, the next generation had E.T. And then we had Jurassic Park. You know, he really does know how to feature children in his movies in a way that gets you wrapped wrapped up into the entire story and able to put yourself in the situation at least until he found out a way to make them cg like an artificial intelligence or radio player one <laughs> but even those are actual children at some point right i mean the only <laughs> time he had a, an actual fake child is like Tintin. <laughs> so, I mean, so yeah i mean like there's a lot of characters and a lot of like really good performances and i know we've sort of skirted around some of the background story of jurassic park but uh why don't we get into some of that now yeah, so as we mentioned, Michael Crichton wrote the original novel, which Steven Spielberg learned about in 1989 before it was published. When he and Crichton were working together on the creating the TV series ER, Spielberg recognized what really fascinated him about Jurassic Park was that it was, quote, a really credible look at how dinosaurs might someday be brought back alongside modern mankind, going beyond just like a simple monster movie. And that's true. I mean, I think that you know, Jurassic Park really did open the minds of people to say that this is plausible. Like, you know, DNA was becoming such a huge thing as far as court cases were concerned and crime. And, and people were starting to realize what DNA could hold for the future. And even now, like this week or last week, I read an article about people putting dinosaur DNA into a fucking chicken 
And like the chicken embryos got all these jagged ass raptor like teeth. And I'm like, oh, have we learned nothing from Jurassic Park? Is that real? Yes. Oh my God. I was just like, no, we have, we go watch this movie again and put that fucking chicken down or whatever. Like, there's no, there's no need for any of this, stupid. <laughs> now we got like a Monty Python, like, style chicken. Yeah, I know. Like, and now for something completely off. terrifying. So, I mean, like, God. <laughs> Jesus. It's a chicken. It's only a chicken. It's like a scary chicken. Yeah, it's like they took that little boy's performance from the beginning of the movie and are like, let's go ahead and make a scary chicken. Doesn't that sound neat god you never stop to think about if you should chicken scientists (laughs) chicken scientists i want to grow up and be a chicken scientist i'm a paleo chicken scientist so is that the science or the diet i don't well yeah speaking of the science obviously Crichton did a lot of research for that and but there's a lot of differences from the movie in the book uh right so Crichton wrote the initial script which he said you know really could only hold about 20 percent tops of the content from his novel it's a very detailed book yeah, so scenes were dropped for budgetary and practical reasons, and the violence was toned down. Uh, two more writers got involved and ended up merging the characters of Alan Grant and Ian Malcolm, which, of course, was later scrapped, thank God. Yes. And uh, David Kep stepped in and added better exposition, including the cartoon they see on the tour, made the cast more colorful, added some relationship tension between Grant, Malcolm, and Settler as we talked about and changed Hammond from a ruthless businessman trope to a kindly old man and a tragic figure. Yep. Smartly done. Uh, clever girl. <laughs> the character of Tim and Lex were uh, switched and Grant's relationship with uh, the children general was added as a subplot to allow more character growth, which are, I mean, like every addition that he added to that story is perfect as far as the movie's concerned. Like, and they're all like emotional additions. Yeah. I mean, and that's what movies need to have. Really, you really have to have like an emotional core in your film and you have to have characters that people will relate to. And I think that he added that in. I love the novel Jurassic Park. I mean, it's one of the first, like it's probably the first hardcover book I ever bought with my own money when I was in like the seventh grade. And I devoured mm. that book more than once before the movie came out and I liked it a lot, but some of those characters in that book are incredibly unlikable. And yeah. I mean, there's a lot of science in it. Like Crichton likes to do in a lot of his other work, but um, you know, I was really looking forward to the movie's release and I'm like, how are they going to do this book? And the changes that they make work as far as like cinema is concerned. Cause it's a really good movie to watch. I still remember my sister read, reading that book before the movie came out and just being obsessed with it and wanting to go see the movie just as much as I did. And I was asking her about it. And of course, I was a child, like I said, only two years you know, older than that boy in the movie is. And um, when I saw the thing and I remember asking her, I was like, so it's like a theme park. And she's like, yeah. I was like, does it have roller coasters? And she's like, no. And I was like, well, that sounds like a shit book. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, roller coasters kind of suck. So, I mean, like, it's okay. I, I couldn't you... imagine, like, a roller coaster sequence with raptors, like, <laughs> jumping from car to car. <laughs> Final destination style to kill you. Speaking of that, though, so I've been to Universal Studios with my husband. We went for our honeymoon because we wanted to go to Simpsons Land and Harry Potter World. But we didn't go to the second part of the park that had the Jurassic Park ride. And that's my biggest regret. 
of anything as involving an amusement park because mm-hmm. I because I love the Jurassic Park franchise so much and I was like God I'm like kicking myself for not going on that ride because that ride in Orlando I don't think exists anymore I think they've replaced it with a Jurassic World ride now and so I'll never get to go on it. Wah, wah. So we mentioned earlier that four studios were trying to get the rights to this film. Warner Brothers had Tim Burton. Columbia Pictures had Richard Donner and 20th Century Fox had Joe Dante and they all bid for the rights. Ooh. I can't imagine any of those directors doing this. I can see Joe Dante doing this. Like, really? Yeah. I mean, it would have been a completely different movie, obviously, but <clears throat> Joe Dante really understands like horror, creature horror and comedy and sort of like, you know, emotional response from people in a Spielbergian way. So I can see that Tim Burton probably would have just fucked it up. Well, I think Universal eventually paid Crichton, you know, a million and a half, probably because, you know, they had a shoe in through Spielberg. You know, Crichton and him already had a relationship and had early news of it. And then they paid him another 500000 just to do the first script, you know. He made a lot of money so, from Jurassic Park. <laughs> After completing Hook, Spielberg wanted to film Schindler's List. The, the green light was given for Schindler's List on the condition that Spielberg direct Jurassic Park first. He later said, I was really just trying to make a good sequel to Jaws on land, which we kind of mentioned in last week's episode. That's right. And he succeeded, for sure. After 25 months <laughs> of pre-production, <laughs> I've never heard of pre-production that long. I guess like you can have that. I think Lord of the Rings had some of that, you know, but my God. Filming began in August of 1992 on the Hawaiian island of uh, Kauai. So, you know, I think he has long since learned of his problems with Jaws, where they went like <laughs> five years over schedule and budget. <laughs> you know, so he's like, oh, I don't have to go over schedule or over budget if I have 25 months of pre-production. For real, though. My God, that's a lot of fucking foreplay. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. So I think that's getting all the the technology right and obviously all the the writing right, Mm -hmm. you know, so. And the way that this movie is directed, like, I'm sure that, like, everything was storyboarded and people knew exactly what they wanted it to look like. And they're like, this is what our finished product needs to be. Let's make no mistakes and spare no expense and we'll make Jurassic (laughs) Park take 25 months to think about it. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) (sighs) About three weeks into shooting on September 11th, what a shitty day, Hurricane Iniki passed directly over Kauai and the entire cast and crew had to shelter in a hotel ballroom on cots. Oh, so uh, there's a story about Spielberg, you know, going around to the different cast and like just talking with people with flashlights and, you know, like he would hold the flashlight over his head and be like, this is what a, how you light different genres. And he lit it over his head. And he's like, this is romance. And then he put it under his chin. He's like, this is horror, you know, and just did a bunch of like, you know, campfire discussions kind of in that ballroom that night. I'd love to have been there, you know, just kind of witness all of the different discussions happening when everyone's in the same room together overnight. Um, Richard Attenborough apparently slept through the whole thing and spielberg was like you slept through the hurricane and he was like my dear boy i survived the blitz this was nothing oh my god yeah i can hear him saying that too (laughs) you know and samuel l jackson was actually supposed to film a lengthy death scene where his character was you know chased and killed by the raptors but the set was destroyed by the hurricane so they couldn't do it and so you know we find dr sattler finding his severed arm instead i mean i i think that the character 
should have that kind of moment, right? Cause, cause he's such a good actor and he's such a good character. But I think there's no doubt that her like finding that severed arm is an iconic horror moment in this movie. And I'm sort of glad it worked out that way. I'm curious to see what that, that, that filming would have been like. Cause that would have been the principal stalking scene, right? Like slasher scene. But I wonder if it would have like, um, diminished her scene. You know, because of that, I, I I think it would. I think it would have diminished her scene. I also think it kind of would have diminished Muldoon's death with the Raptors, right? Because we sort of like see them stalking and hiding and creating plans and problem solving. And I think that if we would have already seen that with Samuel L. Jackson's character, it sort of would have like cheapened those moments that we have in like a jungle situation with Muldoon, who really is the one who has the relationship with the Raptors in the first place. Like he understands their danger and respects it. And I mean, it would have just changed the entire outcome of the Raptors for the rest of the film, if they had that particular moment with Sam Jackson, I feel. So Spielberg decided to act and think like a kid as much as possible when directing the film in order to approach the material with as much awe and wonder as possible, having been a huge dinosaur fan and as a, you know, as a kid himself, you know, and seeing the behind the scenes uh, stuff of him directing, like I've seen behind the scenes with him before and he's much more adult adultish and kind of sitting down and kind of direct taking, you know, giving direction versus in this, he was just very much just like kind of jumping up and down and making dinosaur noises over the bullhorn. And like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like he was, just making a fool of himself and you know it just made the film that much better i feel like because we do get that feeling like you know uh this kind of lighthearted um pacing through the film even though and tone even though we have these moments of sheer horror and terror you know intention i was obsessed with dinosaurs when i was a kid so i can just imagine steven spielberg making this movie right and i like i know that a, a lot of children are you know sort of obsessed with di- were you did you like dinosaurs when you were younger who didn't, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, I just, like, I loved the idea of dinosaurs, and this is why I think this movie is sort of like the movie and book are, like, the perfect storm for me. But, yeah, I, I can imagine him acting, like, that way on set. And I think that he thinks that way in general when he's making a movie. At least his more, like, big-budget action-adventure kind of movies, he thinks, as a child. And I think that's good, too, because, I mean, look at the marketing and stuff that came out of it. Everything was geared toward children as far as Jurassic Park is concerned. And that's very smart. Mm -hmm. And I do feel a sense of childlike wonder when I watch Jurassic Park. Even as an adult, you know, it makes me feel that way. It fills me with some awe in ways that other movies and other Spielberg movies don't, you know. I mean, I know they do for other people, but, like, Jurassic Park is really the definitive, like, childlike wonder movie for me of his. Yeah. In the end, and despite the hurricane, the film wrapped 12 days ahead of schedule on November 30th. Look at that. (laughs) And within days, editor Michael Kahn had a rough cut already, you know, uh, allowing Spielberg to go ahead with filming for Schindler's List. That's pretty fast, right? It's like record timing fast. They wanted to get this movie out there, I think. So I'm getting kind of like whiplash from, you know, the experience of talking about Jaws. Uh huh. (laughs) With all that. Months and months and over budget and like, oh my gosh. And they just had one fucking shark to deal with. (laughs) Mm-hmm. He really did learn a lot from Joss, obviously, and other movies that he made like since then. I think he really had perfected, you know, being a director by the time he got around to Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. And like even today, he can make a movie very efficiently, quickly and well made. And Spielberg oversaw the post-production of Jurassic Park via video link while in Poland filming the Holocaust theme Schindler's List. 
He later called it one of the hardest times in his life as a filmmaker, and it took such an emotional toll on him that his enthusiasm for Jurassic Park was almost just gone. He said that he needed an hour every day to muster up the energy just to commit on the digital dinosaurs and answer to the trivial questions from special effects crew. Could you imagine mm. working on Schindler's list and having to deal with the heaviness of that project? Well, you know, meanwhile, every night these, <laughs> these people are calling and be like, well, what do you think about the T-Rex's arms? You know? <laughs> <laughs> when he's like, you know, elbow deep in Holocaust. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, and Schindler's list itself is a, a very like visually stunning movie. So I know there must've been a lot of storyboarding and stuff going on with that. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not hard for me to imagine him, you know, entertaining people during a hurricane and jumping up and down and making dinosaur noises, but also like going home and like working on his prep for Schindler's list, which he obviously very much wanted to make. So yeah, it's, um, I don't know, being able to jump back and forth between two movies like that. It's got to take some skill as a director. And a person, really, because Schindler's List is heavy. Yeah, and there's a lot of anecdotes about that time, too. You know, like he had Robin Williams calling him almost every day to cheer him up while he was working on Schindler's List. And he took a four-year sabbatical after Schindler's List and didn't make another movie until Jurassic Park 2. Um, you know, and so that took a big hit, you know, just going, he, I think he did hook Jurassic park, you know, and then Schindler's list just back to back, mm-hmm. you know, and he was just like, Nope. <laughs> I mean, cause I mean, the eighties were all about Steven Spielberg. People could not get enough of him. And then when we get into the early nineties, I'm sure that he was just starting to get a little fatigued and maybe artistically needed to take a break. And I mean, I know that to me, at least when you look at like Steven Spielberg's oeuvre, you can definitely see a shift in work post Schindler's List. I think that that was like a, a, a cutoff point. You take a break and then you come back and make like your second set of movies. Right. Does he that make definitely sense? had burned yeah. himself out like mm-hmm. emotionally at the very least. You know, and I do think that's a good milestone in his career because after that, like I think classic Spielberg is like before, you know, is like 93 and before. And then after that, it's like less classics in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to diminish his work past Jurassic Park or Schindler's list. I think that he's made some really incredible movies since then. Um, But nothing on the scale that the seventies and eighties were for Spielberg. It really goes like Jaws to Schindler's list. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but I think he really wanted to do more dramatic work. And we see that with like the color purple and like leading into Schindler's List. And that's really what he wanted to focus on after that. And he did. And he's made some really good dramatic movies like post Schindler's List. But. And some good fun movies too. Yeah. Just not on the same level, I mm-hmm. would say. I would argue. Yeah. Of like, you know, uh, Close Encounters or E.T. or Jurassic Park, you know. And not all of that could be Spielberg himself. I think maybe like some some moviegoer tastes had changed and – you like we've seen things like close encounters and Jurassic park and you have to move on to something else. And maybe he just didn't want to make the kind of movies that people were sort of like hungry for. Let another director try these action adventure movies. Right. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about the, the look and feel a little bit because there's a lot to mine here as far as like the visual and the special effects. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, everything about this movie to me looks incredible. We've already talked about like the childlike wonder and awe that you feel when watching it. And I think a lot of that has to do with the special effects and the way that dinosaurs are presented in such a very lifelike way on the screen. 
Yeah. So Stan Winston was brought in to create the live action animatronic dinosaurs. I feel like everything was kind of made possible here by his work on the Queen Alien and Aliens just, you know, a couple of years earlier, you know, from 86 to, to 93. I guess that's more than a couple of years, but it was such a, a kind of a groundbreaking like animatronic like creature effect with a Queen Alien to be done all in film that they were like thinking that, that all this is possible. And so, of course, they hired the same guy. And, uh, you know, it's, again, groundbreaking animatronics with uh, Jurassic Park. They also brought in Phil Tippett uh, of Star Wars and Robocop fame uh, to create the go motion or computer-assisted stop motion that allows for motion blur for the dinosaurs. And also Dennis Murin from ILM, our industrial light and magic, to oversee the digital compositing between the two. So Winston's department created fully detailed models of the dinosaurs before molding latex skins, which were then fitted over complex robotics. Tippett, Phil Tippett, created uh, stop-motion anima- you know, animatics of the raptors in the kitchen and the Tyrannosaurus attacking the car. But despite Go Motion's attempts at motion blurs, Spielberg found the end results like really good, but not as photorealistic as he was hoping for. Dennis Murin from ILM told Spielberg that he thought the dinosaurs could be built using just complete computer-generated imagery, and so the director asked him to prove it. <laughs> and when Spielberg and Tippett you know, saw an animatic, sat down and, and saw the animatic of the T-Rex chasing the herd of uh, the Gallimimus, Spielberg said, you're out of a job, to which Tippett replied, don't you mean extinct? <laughs> Spielberg later injected this exchange into the script as a conversation between Malcolm and Grant. <laughs> right. <laughs> Don't you mean extinct? Yeah. So they, they actually talk about this as being Black Monday because that's when they found out that essentially the, the production was switching from stop motion to complete CG. And that was basically the death of their industry. But smartly, Spielberg kept them on, um, you know, as supervisors. Right. So although no go motion was used, Tippett and his animators were still used by the production to supervise the movement. Tippett acted as a consultant to Dinosaur Anatomy and his stop motion animators were actually retrained as computer animators. And they studied zoo animals and even took mime classes to better make the movement of the dinosaurs as realistic as possible and to treat them like animals instead of monsters and have them stop every once in a while, like scratch something, you know, and, and things like that to make them a lot more, you know, naturalistic. And they do a very good job of that because even like the dinosaurs' reactions to people sometimes are sort of like awe-inspiring, right? You can really look at these dinosaurs acting like like actual animals that like you would find in a zoo and the way those animals would react to you reacting to them. And it's just really neat to watch, especially the scenes where Nedry is killed by the Dilophosaurus, right? That animal is like playing with him a little bit and it's having fun in a way that like your kitty cat would, you know? <laughs> and like, and it just makes the scene all that better, right? Cause you stop and think about how horrific and terrifying these creatures are. And they're not monsters per se, because they actually existed at one point on earth, right? Like these are actual animals and not something that someone just dreamed up, you know, in a studio, like we have evidence of what these creatures look like and act like. And it's, it's neat that they studied other animals to get that stuff down because it really creates a very realistic approach to a creature feature that other horror movies just can't accomplish because they're dealing with, you know, fake things. Right. And there was a lot of pressure to prove that CGI could create entire creatures for a feature film and make them look believable. 
I think that pressure combined with their you know careful study of movement and clever editing to cut between Stan Winston's animatronics and CGI creatures is why the vast majority of effects in Jurassic Park still hold up today, despite being the you know the groundbreaker for such extensive use of CGI creatures, even though the film was released nearly 30 years ago. That's crazy. Using the computer technology at the time, it ended up taking six hours per frame Jesus. to render the dinosaurs. Of course, there's 24 frames per second in uh-huh. your yeah, average movie. And so if you do the math, that's just insane. But if you think about Jurassic Park, you know, you think, you know, there's there's shit tons of, you know, dinosaurs and everything else. I mean, they, they really threw it at us, you know. But if you look at the entire movie, there are only 15 minutes of dinosaur footage. Nine minutes are Stan Winston's animatronics and six minutes is Industrial Light and Magic CGI. God, it seems like so much more than that. I they mean, they really did a good job. God. Of balancing it out. I had no idea. I really, you feel like there is dinosaurs from start to finish in Jurassic Park, but I mean. And there is. Yeah. You know, it's just really evenly spaced throughout. Very smart and very well crafted and done. I just love these dinosaurs so much. And I know that like at the time, didn't they like go on tour eventually? Like the same kind of animatronics were used in like touring exhibits. I think so. And maybe even still today, people go and see animatronic dinosaurs and things like that. This movie has stood the test of time. And just look about movies that came afterward, right? CGI became a huge thing after Jurassic Park and totally changed the landscape and the way that we watch and create movies. Yeah, I think if you go to the Creation Museum, you can see uh, you can see people riding dinosaurs and. Oh, I was like, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> it's that crazy right wing Australian guy that created a museum in the States that shows like cavemen riding dinosaurs because the world is only 6,000 years old or some shit. No, but I mean, back to CGI, like, um, you know, I feel like a lot of directors post Spielberg kind of were just like, oh, this tool is available now. Like, you know, people that weren't as technically inclined, like James Cameron or some other directors would just say, hey, we need XYZ creature to do XYZ and just throw it out at the, at the you know, the design studio or whatever to do it. And with no real focus on, you know, the characterization of whatever creatures they were creating or the natural, you know, um, movements or things like that and that's part of the reason why jurassic park still stands out is because you can have the best looking high definition cgi but without great animation and you know huge attention to detail of movement and you know the the performance of the creature on the screen you're it's just not going to be super realistic it's going to have give you uncanny valley and that's not something that this film gives us at all i don't think no, I completely agree with you. It does not. I think everything looks incredibly realistic. And like I've seen movies where the CGI effects or even animatronic effects or practical effects take you out of the movie because it's just like, oh, that looks incredibly fake, right? That's just not something that I experience. When I watch any movie in the Jurassic Park franchise, like the dinosaurs continue to look so realistic. I think equally as important as some of the visual effects or some of the sound effects in this movie because these dinosaurs sound fucking incredible (laughs) yes really effective and amazing yeah it's just for real i just like i i i want to know like all the different sounds they make because in (laughs) earlier you said like dolphins having sex and they obviously use other different kinds of animals and shit Like, I can hear that, sort of, but, like, it's all meshed together in this very interesting-sounding way. Like, it sounds 
pleasing yet like not pleasing to the ear it just stands out and it's just amazing to me what they did the t-rex roar is iconic yeah i was just like with the surround sound on i was just like slack jawed at a couple of times it roared and i was just like holy shit and they're like on the screen holding their ears shut you know so it, it just works really well and, you know, of course, everything Spielberg's doing on screen is, you know, supporting what they're doing with the sound, you know, even just like the the breath on the on the glass of the Raptor has this distinctive, mm-hmm. you know, high pitched like sound, you know, of it breathing and everything's just it's not lazy at all. Everything's just done, you know, so exactingly. And yeah, it matches up so well with the way that things are shot on camera and the sounds that they make. I mean, it's just amazing, amazing sound work in this. I mean, you, you can always see like breath on a window or something come from a dinosaur. But when you add in the way the dinosaur looks, the way that the breath looks on the like actual physical window and the sound that comes with it, it just pairs up so well to create a really magical moment watching this movie. And of course, like we said, this is the first film to have digital sound. Spielberg himself funded the creation of DTS or the digital theater system for this movie. I didn't realize that actually. I mean, oh. but I mean, I know that I know that he was, he put money into it, but I didn't realize this was the very first one. Yeah, he wanted it to to sound exactly the way they wanted it to sound and, you know, helped upgrade theaters and everything else in order to get this done so that, you know, Jurassic Park would sound the way that was intended. And it really just, again, goes to show you how much Jurassic Park changed the way that we watch movies or experience movies. And Spielberg has done this throughout his career. If you look back to Jaws being the prototypical summer blockbuster, and here he's making another summer blockbuster, and he was like, well, how do I do it better? Like he wanted to do, right? And you create these new technologies and make it work. And then that's just how we see movies now, right? People fully recognize the sound in film and the way it sounds in a theater. We try to recreate things like that in our own homes. Even I think, um, what was the, uh, what's the big sound? It seemed like every movie that came out had that intro that said it was, this is shown in this particular THX or THX. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm, you know, I, it might have come around the same time or a little bit later after that. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know the relationship between DTS or THX because obviously THX is ILM backed, you know, um, you know, it's George Lucas, right? And the sound effects for Jurassic Park were supervised by none other than George Lucas himself. I didn't realize that either. My yeah, at the top of the special thanks, even in the in the credits for the film, it says George Lucas is at the top of that before the government of, you know, Hawaii and stuff like that, you know, <laughs> Costa Rica and everything else. You know, and there's a funny anecdote because uh, he went to the, you know, Stan Winston shop with Spielberg, you know, to see the T-Rex and, you know, he wanted a photo op. So he stuck his head into the T-Rex. No, I'm just joking. He learned his lesson from what? Jaws. Yeah, I was going to say, that did not happen again. <laughs> <laughs> we can't talk about the sound in Jurassic Park and not talk about John Williams. I just forgot, you know, you know everyone knows the theme or can name it when they hear it, right? But I've forgotten how this movie opens and how this the track starts. You know, it's such a like uh ominous and, you know, you know, horror inducing kind of score, you know, where it's you know, it has to the score had to do so many things, right? It, it's incredibly complex, and I've listened to the whole thing since, and um, it has to convey this overwhelming sense of awe and happiness and excitement, but also produce deep feelings of horror and terror and tension, dread and action. You know, and all those things are in the score, and it does so just right from the first note, where it's just kind of like, oh, <laughs> the beginning of the movie, where we see the raptor, you know, scene happen. 
And it's incredibly effective and incredibly layered. And it's like, just like Jaws, I go back and listen to it. And I was like, this is a lot more complex and detailed than I had remembered. So after our conversation on Jaws, I went to Spotify and I listened to several tracks from the Jaws soundtrack. And that led me to listen to several tracks from Jurassic Park. And then I just sort of pulled up a John Williams best of. And I was going through these different choices that either Spotify or people listening to Spotify have made. And his career is just incredible. And like every score sounds so individual. I even listened to a selection from The Book Thief, which I still haven't seen. And I'm such like, a good score. It was good. You know, and I'm just like, this this man is incredible. And I really do like the score from Jurassic Park. Like I said, it was one of the first hardback cover books that I bought with my own money. I also went and purchased this score on cassette. I think it was the first film score that I ever bought for myself. And I haven't purchased very many like this and Interview the Vampire and a handful of others, right? But I really love the fuck out of the Jurassic Park score and listened to it a lot when I was a kid. You think about your favorite bands producing like a really great album every few years or even every 10 years or something something right and you think about john williams doing like close encounters well even just these three like back-to-back hook and then jurassic park and then schindler's list mm-hmm. so, you know I, I would argue that all three of those are fairly iconic especially the, the latter two schindler's list music is just amazing yeah right and for him to do that like in the space of a single year it just blows my mind did he take yeah. a four-year sabbatical after all this? <laughs> no, he kept on trucking no. and making more music. I mean, John Williams <laughs> doesn't know how to take a break, man. He's like, you know what? That movie looks good. Here's some music for it. I wrote it in two seconds. So it's fantastic or whatever. He's amazing. Come on. But uh, yeah, I think that I think a lot of people who fell in love with Jurassic Park remember the score. I think people who don't really realize that music and movies like came away like humming it. He really created a very catchy tune that has stood the test of time it's been used in the other jurassic park movies like he created a very fantastic theme that people can latch onto and remember and i think that's super important for a movie of this caliber right so you think about everything that this movie has going for it like a good cast really good marketing campaign excellent special effects and sound effects and amazing score and direction i mean it really is like the entire package of just a phenomenal movie Summer yeah. blockbuster or no? I mean, it's just great. Well, speaking of which, uh, let's talk about some of our personal stories about the our memories of Jurassic Park, like coming out and, and everything else. Okay, tell me what are some of yours. Well, I remember like the buzz around it, even as a kid. You know, I remember there was an article with um, Sam Neill talking about like, the effects and seeing the 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 dinosaurs on set and how he was like they're terrified and children can be terrified and it's going to be amazing and people aren't going to know what they're looking at and you know and that of course increases the buzz you know and and then i remember just really wanting to see it but that it was just sold out everywhere and that it was just impossible to try and get in I remember one day we went to um, a restaurant and right across was a theater and jurassic park had just come out and we were like well can we were like begging our parents to see if we could go over there <laughs> and try and, and see if we could get in. And they're like, I don't think we can, you know? And so we did and we actually got tickets. And so we waited in line for about two hours. And I, at that point I had like a migraine and uh, oh, to remember a migraine as a child, like <laughs> that was pretty bad. I was laying down on some sort of like concrete slab outside the theater and it was like 90 degrees and it was bad. And we finally went into the the theater. My sister's talking with someone in the a row behind us about the book and uh, you know, it starts and I still have my headache and I'm just like, I'm going to throw up. 
the trailer for Hocus Pocus played. I still remember that. I don't know why I remember this day in such detail. You know, and the movie starts and my headache just disappeared. I remember thinking to myself, like, it's a fucking miracle, you know? <laughs> and I, I saw what is Jurassic Park and it just blew my little kid mind. You know, I remember watching this as a kid and just being completely blown away. Several other movies had done that before, like in, like Star Wars, but I think you know, I'd seen effects like as good or better than Star Wars by that time I'd seen, you know, in the eighties or nineties. And so it was really the ideas and imagination of Star Wars. I think that blew my mind at a younger age. And it was the sheer execution of Jurassic park that blew my mind. Like nothing like it had been seen before in my life until that point. I don't think there's, and until now, I don't think like there's anything like the release of Jurassic park as far as an event and an aftermath like that, maybe in game. I don't know. Um, Lord of the Rings a little bit, Harry Potter a little bit, but nothing like Jurassic Park, right? Uh, The expectations were so high and then exceeded by such a huge margin that you just don't see that, but every couple of decades at least. Well, and I have to think that, like, as I remember the release of Jurassic Park and I, like I said, I was like, I bought this book with my own money. Like there was a thing called book fairs, right? Did your st- schools ever have those? Yeah, oh yeah, Scholastic. And so like they would give you a little like ad, you know, a pamphlet to show mm-hmm. what they're going to be selling. And I'm like, oh, Jurassic Park. I don't know what this is. I hadn't even heard of the book before, but I was intrigued by the cover with the dinosaur skeleton. And I think my English teacher at the time was in the seventh grade said, oh, I've read it. You would like it. And so I saved up my money. And when the book fair rolled around, I, I bought it, read it just loved it and i thought it would make a fantastic movie and then when you hear that a movie is actually coming you know it really does build that buzz like you talked about and i mean this is one of the first movies that i sort of counted down to the release to right so in the summer of 1993 i would have been 14 14. years old and um like it's just like at that cusp of being a teenager, but still being a kid. I and was like, 11. <laughs> yeah, I was you know, and, and reading books, you know, aside from Jurassic Park, I was still reading things like Stephen King and I was discovering classic literature and stuff like that. And I just was just fascinated by this story and I could not wait to see the movie. I know that we saw it on opening weekend and I don't remember having to wait for tickets. Like my mother took me and my brother to see it. And she's always very prompt for the movies. Like if she misses any kind of trailer <laughs> or advertisement in the beginning, the entire experience is ruined. So, I mean, ruined. like we have, it's ruined. So I know that we probably got there hours before had our tickets secure, you know, had good seats and you're right. The movie just blew my mind. And you know, sometimes even at 14, I'd be pissed off that a movie is so different from the book, but it didn't matter. Like, these are two separate things for me. I love the novel. I love the movie. I don't care about the differences. And I could, you know, keep both of them. You know, I've read Jurassic Park since I was a little preteen. I've read it as an adult and it still holds up. The movie holds up. And it just it really is like the first tentpole movie that I was looking forward to as a kid. And I think a lot of people wanted to see Jurassic Park. The differences between like Lord of the Rings and Endgame and some of these other like really big movies that have made just like gobbledy gillions of dollars is that not everyone wants to go see Lord of the Rings, right? I think that for the spectacle, yeah, they do, you know? But I mean, it's a very certain kind of person who's read Tolkien and is looking forward to those movies. But Jurassic Park just really captures the imagination of the public at large, and I think that this is just something that they want to go see. And it created a huge, like, watershed moment, just like he did with Jaws, you know? Yeah. Pop culture-wise and, you know, technically-wise. 
Yeah, I mean, and I know that you have stories about like the VHS release of this movie too. Yeah, that was a big deal. By the time it came out, I was in sixth, and you would have been in eighth grade because it came out in the summer, I think. And then, like you would, you know, it was coming out maybe in the fall or something or somewhere mm-hmm. in there. And I just remember kids being like, "Well, my mom's been in line since last night at the like Blockbuster or Warehouse Music or whatever the fuck it was back <laughs> then," you know uh you know to to buy jurassic park on vhs you know and you know everyone was kind of bragging about you know getting it first you know it was just of course my my family didn't buy movies like that so i was just like jealous you know but um you know we ended up getting on laser discs so i kind of remember like this being one of the first movies that you could pre-order right wasn't that a big deal about jurassic park like it's coming out on video you can place your order or something like that or did you have to be there at midnight to get i don't it? know i don't know because I, I know that we had it fairly soon after it came out. I mean, cause my, my family, we love movies, you know, I mean, like all of us and we all have our different favorites. But, you know, each of us, the four core family members that we have just loved Jurassic Park. And I know that we were anxious to watch it again. We saw it more than once in the theater and then we bought the movie when it came out and we watched it several times on VHS together as a family. And it's rare for that to happen for us. And so, I mean, this really is a, a huge moment and i think my entire family's life i think my my dad dabbled in like you know being a, a videophile a little bit and so <laughs> we had laser disc and we were part of like this labor laser disc subscription program we were like one of the five people in the world <laughs> and <laughs> there was actually a laser disc store in my town back then it was weird and these things look like big records right they're yeah. giant cds and uh so i think we got jurassic park fairly soon but i couldn't get it like vhs opening day the whole market Market was geared towards getting those VHSs out there, right? So we got it fairly soon, I think. You know, but we were never a Laserdisc family. In fact, like by the time the D- DVD came <laughs> around, my pa- I was the only one. <laughs> my parents were like, "What's DVD? Why? Why would we do that over VHS?" And like you know, over the years, still to this day, my parents don't have a Blu-ray player in their house. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah, it's just DVD only. They're like, "We don't need that. We have DVD." And I'm like be careful like one day all the game they still have like i've walked into my mother's closet right because that's where she keeps a lot of the liquor <laughs> and um she has just mounds and mounds and an entire shelf full of like vhs tapes and i was like do you have a vcr and she's no i'm like well why are you holding on to these i don't understand <laughs> but i kind of want to get a vh like a vcr now and go they get some of these tapes something. and watch it yeah i mean like a lot of my childhood movies that i had picked on vhs to own she just kept and she has this whole little collection of VHS tapes. And I'm like, I get my hands on a VHR. Those Disney VCR. movies and like the the padded covers. Like, or like the clamshell boxes. I have yeah. a shit ton of those. They're in my mother's closet. I mean, like, it could be a treasure trove of eBay sales like going on in there. <laughs> yeah, for real. <laughs> so I have some fun facts. Oh, good. I'm super looking forward to this. All right. So we'll start off easy. <laughs> the The Triceratops dung didn't smell at all it was actually made of clay mud and straw it was drizzled in honey and papayas so flies wouldn't swarm near it my god so finally they created some sort of like practical effect that didn't make the entire crew and cast like vomit (laughs) (laughs) Spielberg has learned so much since Jobs. i know he really has grown and changed as a director (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. 20 years later Jesus, really? Is it? It's like 19 years. Yeah, it's like 19 years between Jaws and Jurassic Park. Isn't that fun? I mean, it's amazing. Crazy. 
So the ripples in the glass of water caused by uh, T-Rex's footsteps were inspired by Spielberg listening to Earth, Wind, and Fire in his car (laughs) and the vibrations the bass rhythm caused. They were unsure how to create the shot until the night before filming when they put a glass of water on a guitar being played, which achieved the concentric circles in the water that Spielberg wanted. The next morning, guitar strings were put inside the car and a man on the floor plucked them to achieve the effect. (laughs) Oh, wow. That really is practical. I wonder what song he was listening to. I love Earth, Wind & Fire. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, there was an original ending. So Spielberg changed the climax to bring back the T-Rex, abandoning the original ending where Grant uses a platform machine to maneuver a raptor into the fossil Tyrannosaurus jaws. <laughs> the scene, you know, you half expect him to like put a tank in the, rap- the raptor's arms and shoot it. <laughs> <I know. laughs> the scene, which already included the juxtaposition of live dinosaurs in a museum filled with their fossils, while also destroying the bones, now had an ending where the T-Rex saved the protagonists and afterwards made Spielberg made what Spielberg described as a King Kong roar while an ironic banner reading what dinosaurs when dinosaurs ruled the earth flew. Yeah, that really is an iconic moment in this movie. And I think that people remember, I know if they're going to show clips on the Oscars of like thrilling moments in movies, like that's what they show from Jurassic Park is that T-Rex roar and that banner, because it really is just a moment. It's a moment in cinema history and no one can forget it. Exactly. And, you know, Spielberg changed it partially because he knew the audiences, or at least he said this, the audiences would never forgive him for not showing the T-Rex one last time because the T-Rex is the real hero of Jurassic Park. Well, and if you think about it, too, I mean, every kid who likes dinosaurs, right, they will all have their favorites and whatnot, but every child would say T-Rex. It's usually even like adults. When you ask like dinosaurs, it's the first dinosaur that springs to mind. And I think that happened even before Jurassic Park was a thing. And so you have to have the most popular dinosaur like somewhere at the end. You can't just forget it out in the wilds of the park. Well, there's always the contrarians that say, you know, Triceratops or Pterodactyl, you know. Yeah. I mean, like like, question. What's your favorite dinosaur? (laughs) (laughs) We don't like shit all over it. Everyone's entitled to their favorite, but by God, I mean, like everyone loves a T-Rex because it's, it's a famous dinosaur. And despite its little arms, it's probably really fucking gnarly and mean. Or the fucking weirdos that say Stegosaurus. I like Stegosaurus. I like the Triceratops too. So I like that little dinosaur that had like the armor plated head with the little tail that you could like whip around. I don't know. I don't know what it's called. I've forgotten since I was a kid, but I think I like that one too. Anyway. So the T-Rex occasionally malfunctioned due to the rain. Producer Kathleen Kennedy recalls, the T-Rex went into the heebie-jeebies sometimes, scared the crap out of us. We'd be like (laughs) eating lunch and all of a sudden the T-Rex would come alive. At first we didn't know what was happening and we realized it was rain. You'd hear people start screaming. Oh my god, I would love to have been on this. I would have been scared to death. Because you look at it, it was a full-size fucking T-Rex animatronic, and my god. (laughs) Did it have a name? Did they call it like something Bruce-like or something? No, I don't think so. I don't know. They named the raptors. I think it was like Jane and Ralph or something. (laughs) It was like Kim and Randy or something like that. (laughs) Kim and Randy. Kim and Horny. So the Tyrannosaurus roars were a combination of dog, penguin... (gasps) tiger alligator and elephant sounds <laughs> the fuck kind of bastard animal is that the tyrannosaurus rex <laughs> i love penguins listeners just so you're aware i have a penguin tattooed on my leg it's my spirit animal so i'm very happy that the penguin is featured in that tyrannosaurus roar 
<laughs> but for I'm, real, I'm, it's so iconic. I can't imagine. Like, I'd love to see like the the layer of audio in each track of it, like the dog, mm-hmm. penguin, tiger, alligator, and elephant, and see like how they were put together to create that roar. It's just yeah. iconic. It is super interesting. Yeah, I would like to know that as well. So all of the cast were given a Raptor model signed by director Steven Spielberg as a gift. It looked very frightening and Ariana Richards has it in her house to shock anyone coming in like a guard at the gate. Jeff Goldblum's model has a prime spot in his house. and is a cherished object. Laura Dern put her Raptor model in her son's room near his crib. And when he was older and saw it, he screamed like never before. She had to put it in storage, but hopes one day the two will be friends. (laughs) Why the fuck would she do that? (laughs) <laughs> what a bitch <laughs> that's great so we're talking life-size model i don't think so maybe okay. i don't know i hope not because my god hopefully it's like a half model at the least i mean that's a pretty awesome gift i can't wait till one of them decides they're gonna have to sell it or something <laughs> like i'll buy it while discussing chaos theory ian malcolm of course jeff goldblum shamelessly flirts with ellie sattler Laura Dern. After meeting on this movie, the two began a romantic relationship and were engaged for two years before breaking up. Goldblum is famous for striking up relationships with co-stars. I remember this. I remember that being a big part of like celebrity gossip and <laughs> pop culture. Like I, I'm shamelessly into like celebrity gossip. Like I still follow it today for no good reason. But yeah, Jeff Goldblum is really famous for like striking up relationships with his co-stars, and he's kind of like schmoozy and flirty in the movie. And I kind of expect him to act like that in real life. Like if I were to meet Jeff Goldblum in a bar, I should think that he'd be flirting with anybody, you know, male, female. It just seems like that's the kind of person he is. He'd be like, "Let me see your hand," and like dip his finger in his beer, <laughs> let it roll off my hand. And I'd be like, "Let's go have sex." <laughs> <God>. <laughs> <laughs> and he does have that zoom moment in this movie where the camera just like slowly goes up to him he's like on his side shirtless <laughs> such have an iconic seen, meme moment have you seen that fucking gif where they have um it's it's uh his character malcolm's shirt open when he's laying on the table with his leg wrapped up and they superimpose alan grant listening to the triceratops no. like stomach and <laughs> yeah, he's on top it. of <laughs> he's on top of jeff goldblum listening I fucking love that gift. It's so funny. (laughs) (sighs) So when Jeff Goldblum says the line, must go faster, must go faster, while being chased, um, in Independence Day, three years later, 1996, co-executive producer and co-writer and director uh, Roland Emmerich liked it so much, he had Goldblum say it when he and Will Smith were escaping the mothership. Yep, I forgot about that. Yeah, he does. And I always, you know, it's like, what movie is that from? And I think Independence, no, it was Jurassic Park. No, it was, no, it was Independence. And it's obvious now I know it's both. <laughs> must go faster, must go faster. <laughs> I can't believe that's only three years after Jurassic Park. That was like a world of growing up and experience between those two movies for me. Like, it's, that's crazy to think about. I mean, yeah, because by the time that, I mean, Jurassic Park was a movie that I needed a parent to take me to go see because I couldn't drive, right? And by the time Independence Day rolled around, I'm behind the wheel of a car going to see it myself, you know? It's a lot, a lot of time and space for such a small period. Or maybe it's because we're old now and we're looking back on like teenage years, which go by a lot slower than adult Yeah, I wasn't a teenager when Jurassic Park came out, but I was when Indian, Indian, Independence Day came out. So Mm -hmm. it's right on the Huge amount of growing up. What else you got? James Cameron has stated that he wanted to make the movie, but the rights were bought a few hours before he could even bid. 
Upon seeing the movie, Cameron realized that Spielberg was the better choice to direct it, as his version would have been much more violent, a la Aliens with Dinosaurs, which which wouldn't have been fair to the children who relate to the dinosaurs. The visual effects were directly influenced by, of course, Cameron's Terminator 2 Judgment Day and Abyss. Uh, He watched, Spielberg watched both of those as uh, prep for making uh, something with CG. And so I would, you know, out of all those directors that we mentioned earlier, like Joe Dante, et cetera, et cetera, I would be interested in seeing a James Cameron Jurassic Park movie. I would too, just because he he makes a fantastic action film, you know? And I'm not saying that Spielberg doesn't, but Spielberg makes a very specific kind of action movie, and so does Cameron. And yeah, I can see it being yeah. more violent. I can see there being like just balls to the wall dinosaurs, and it would have been a really good R-rated fun movie to go see. Spielberg know? makes a very accessible, like adventure film that's really like a you know a, a wolf in sheep's clothing which is actually like jurassic park a horror movie but it's in like this sheep's clothing mm-hmm. of an adventure film versus james cameron would have made it an outright horror film you know yep. uh, much more like action horror like aliens and I, I can see a lot of scenes in jurassic park that were probably influenced by aliens specifically you know like her and the kind of industrial like causeway catwalk kind of situation where the raptors are coming after her and like in the forest when the raptors come into the sides you know of the guy and you know it's a lot of that stuff seems kind of aliens ish to me and she really is i mean like ellie sattler is a really good like female character in an action film very much like ellen ripley is a good character like she takes charge she gets things done it's a really cameron-esque kind of character and like i I can appreciate that. I think that he would have maybe changed that character a little bit more, gave her more to do in the movie. And I mean, I could appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm on board with a Cameron version of this. I still would like to see Dante, but I wouldn't yeah. uh, doc. Tim Burton should stay far away from any Jurassic <laughs> park movie. Don't you ever even think about it again, Tim? Could you imagine like Raptors with like black circles under their eyes? <laughs> right. Everything's like black and white striped. You're like, what dinosaur is that? You're like, Oh, it's the Beetlejuice or whatever. You know, I'm like, no, this is not a Tim Burton Beetlejuice movie. Thoros. <laughs> Beetlejuice Thoros. You have to say the dinosaur's name three times. I can barely say it once. <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah, I wonder like uh, Jurassic Park where like, uh, you know, Ellie Zettler and, uh, you know, Grant's characters are kind of combined into one and it was played by Sigourney Weaver. <laughs> oh my God. <gasps> You know what? I can't even think about it. It's just going to make me regret the movie. And I love this movie. And I don't want to have bad feelings. About no, but I wouldn't so. be opposed to a future, you know, Jurassic Park 8, you know, done by James Cameron or something, you know. Uh, I think the director is <laughs> doing good things with it now. Yeah. So it's okay. Well, but, uh, I mean, we'll see. We'll talk about that later. According to Fandango, it would cost approximately $23 billion to build a real life Jurassic Park. One and, a half, yeah. <laughs> One and a half billion the cost of the park itself, 10 billion to purchase an island off the coast of Costa Rica with 60, you know, 66 square miles of land uh, or, you know, 22 square miles for Isla Nublar and 44 square miles for Isla Sorna, 8 million for research and legal team, 9 million for harvesting dinosaur DNA, 8.5 million for overhead to clone dinosaurs in the DNA, 11 billion a year or 32 million per day. Uh, <laughs> employee payroll and operations budget 200 million a year for the dinosaur food budget and in total the estimated yearly operating expenses for jurassic park add up to approximately 11.9 billion every year to run it that is insane not feasible 
So they could not have a coupon day. They've got to like charge full price. <laughs> yeah, 23 billion is just like insane to me. Like watch one of those YouTube videos where it explains the difference between a million and a billion and you just it just like, blows your mind. <laughs> I'm fairly certain though that if they were able to clone dinosaurs and they created a park like this, people would flock to it. Despite seeing all the movies in this franchise and knowing what can go wrong, they would still be like, "Let's go see the dinosaurs, you wanna?" <laughs> I mean, god. <laughs> so they would be able to make money, I'm sure, but I don't know. Maybe we'll see when they finish that chicken. (laughs) So my last one. Okay. In 2005, paleontologist Dr. Mary Schweitzer discovered red blood cells and soft tissue in the fossilized bones of a (sighs) T-Rex, meaning dinosaur cloning may someday become a reality. Although you kind of ruined my final thing by telling me the chicken thing. Well, I mean, it was just an embryo. They didn't hatch it, right? Okay. And they had to, they, they, what they did According to the article, and I don't even know which dinosaur it was, but it had to have been one with sharp ass teeth. So they injected this DNA into a chicken embryo and let it develop inside the egg. So it's like a chicken dinosaur hybrid. But there's pictures of the embryo inside the egg, like x-ray style, and it looks horrifying. Google it after we're done recording because I'm just like, no, like y'all need to stop this right now. Like, do not make that fucking chicken. I just can't. I'm I'm on the opposite side of the fence. I'm like, make that fucking chicken. No, what are you talking about? We'll all be dead. We got COVID and shit to worry about. We don't need murder chickens running around. It's just one murder chicken, Robert. Oh, life finds a way, Chris. And those murder chickens will be breeding like no other. And pretty soon we'll be overrun with murder chickens and then COVID. And we'll just have, like, I don't even know what will happen. Like, who had murder chickens for August or whatever? You know what I mean? (laughs) No. So we're clearly on two sides of this. Like science needs to stop at some point. I just want to see what happens, Robert. (laughs) Yeah, death and disruption, mayhem happens. Sounds like a good YouTube video. (laughs) As long as I can enjoy it like safely from my home. You know, I'm like, oh, there's that murder chicken again. If I hear some demon (laughs) clucking, I just won't open the door. (laughs) What's that noise? Who can say? <laughs> I don't know, but it sounds like a combination of an elephant and a penguin. <laughs> don't open the door. <laughs> oh, that's like two times in a row that all the facts were like super fun. I love it. I love it when I laugh so much about the fun facts. But so we need to move on into some questions that we like to ask here on the Film Flamers. And so we'll do the same for Jurassic Park. So... Were you scared while watching Jurassic Park? Uh, Certainly the first time. And there's definitely moments of tension watching it again. Definitely. So, uh, yes, I guess. Yeah, I was certainly scared when I was a kid. And I think I jumped and screamed out loud when, like, one of the raptor heads pokes out, you know, from Mm. something. Because, I mean, like, I forgot that it was going to happen. And I was just like, oh, (laughs) like sort of taken (laughs) aback, you know. But it's a super tense movie. And they they put their characters, especially the children, into some really perilous situations. And it's hard not to watch this and not feel some kind of, like, terror or tension or fear. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think I was scared watching Jurassic Park. Yeah. So with that being said, then, would you call this a horror movie? Yes. It's got every element. There's like a slasher element in there with the raptors. There's, of course, you know, monster movie stuff with uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex. There's gore, you know, there's chase scenes and um, 
you know, there's a lot of that tension and dread and, and everything else. And uh, there's just so many elements here for horror, you know, it's just wrapped in this really super accessible adventure skin. Like I said, wolf in sheep's clothing. And that's just something that Spielberg does fairly well. So I was talking to um, my father and my brother yesterday and uh, my dad asked what movies we were covering in August. And I was like, Oh, we're doing jaws and Jurassic park. And he was like, why those aren't horror movies. And I was just like, no, let's stop and think about that for what? a minute together, right? <laughs> and he was like, they're not horror movies. And I was like, think about the opening scene of Jaws where that woman is being pulled under the water and you can't see what's doing it. And she looks so terrified. And he's like, yeah, I can see that. And I was like, and think about those scenes involving like the raptors and the T-Rex chase and whatnot. I was like, you can't tell me that you weren't a little scared watching that. And he was like, yeah, I guess you're right. And I was like, you know, we could say horror adjacent all we want to about both Jaws and Jurassic Park. For the fact that, I mean, people would say, they would argue that it's not a pure horror movie because it doesn't have like the horror elements you would see in like a Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th. But that's bullshit. These movies are completely terrifying. Yeah. Dealing with creatures. And I mean, it's a horror film. I would say that, you know, some of those movies are more overt, more obviously a horror movie, right? Right. All its trappings and marketing. But just because... You know, I would argue that Jaws is straight up horror, but Jurassic Park is not marketed like a horror movie and it's nope. wisely not, you know, it's, and it makes the, the horror intention and, and dread that much more effective, you know, because it kind of lulls you or sorry, it kind of draws you into this false sense of security. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's like you, you go in to see a movie that you're expecting to be some sort of dinosaur adventure, maybe sci-fi twinged film, and you leave like completely jarred and terrorized from your experience, you know, and, and good horror movies do Just that. Just like all the characters. Yeah. So, I mean, it's clearly a horror movie. I wouldn't even call it horror adjacent, especially Jurassic Park. <laughs> so. Yeah. So out of five stars, what would you rate Jurassic Park? So I have a little story behind this. And, you know, it's interesting because, you know, when something gets so popular, like we say, like we've said before, um, popularity breeds contempt, right? Uh, And the inner contrarians in us don't want to be like everyone else when we want to be individuals. And, you know, so over time, you know, maybe I was influenced by, you know, um, less successful sequels or the idea of the franchise and just how popular and successful it's been and looking back and when i started um letterbox about a year ago or so and i was adding a bunch of classics and jurassic park was no different i rated it four stars just yeah that's the best like i've rated all the other ones like three somewhere in the three star range you know jurassic park is the better one and went on my my merry way and then i watched it again this time i hadn't watched it over 10 years probably And I was just blown away by how good this movie is, just solidly good from beginning to end, you know, and every aspect of it. And then, you know, doing the research and how groundbreaking it is from, you know, multiple perspectives. And, you know, I can't find really a fault with it at all. And I enjoyed the shit out of it on this watch. I was just like, I got a little teary eyed in some places. Like it's still magical in places. It's still scary in places, you know? And so I'm, I'm changing my rating to a five star. I really have to echo your sentiment on this. And I, it had also been over 10 years since I had seen Jurassic Park. I love the franchise. I never stopped watching the movies. If a Jurassic Park movie is coming to the theater, I will go see it in the theater. And that has just not changed for any of them. And I like them all for, for different reasons, but you have to go back to the original and look at it. And it really is just as magical watching it at 40 as it was watching it 14. And I would also give it five stars. And, you know, I'm maybe just like the tip of my nostalgia boners being put in there, <laughs> but I, I, it's like, I, 
to me, it really is a masterpiece like you and I, like you had called it earlier in the day when we were texting back and forth. And I mean, it is, it's, it's a masterpiece. I think this is one of Steven Spielberg's best movies. Um, if not the best in my opinion. Oh, interesting. I, I, I think that he, this is a, a fantastically well-made movie. I think it stands the test of time. I think that people hundreds of years from now will still be going back to watch the original Jurassic Park and just being in awe of it. And no matter what changes with technology in real life, like the idea of cloning dinosaurs and what would happen on an island like that is just fascinating for people. And it's just such a good movie that you just run the gamut of all emotions with and... It's just five stars for me, completely all the way. Nostalgia boner or not. Agreed. So, so finally, and some might say most importantly, who's the hottest guy in Jurassic Park? Come through, clever girl. <laughs> so for me, the hottest guy in this is like a it's very close right it's between you know dr alan grant played by sam neill and dr ian malcolm played by jeff goldblum so not the lawyer with the uh shorts and tie combo <laughs> although the lawyer at the very beginning though or the the business guy the very beginning was kind of attractive who was uh given the barbasol can oh yeah dodson mm-hmm. dodson we got dodson here <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I don't have to go back and forth. I'm just going to say Jeff Goldblum. Like, I think, I think he's attractive. Incredibly charming in this film. Yeah. In every movie. I mean, like Jeff Goldblum is Jeff Goldblum. I don't think he has to change his personality or anything when he makes a movie. He's just Jeff Goldblum. And while I don't think that he's just like incredibly sexy or anything, it's the charisma that really works for him. And any role or just himself in real life. You know what I mean? Like I would certainly never kick Jeff Goldblum out of bed. In fact, I don't think he would have to say more than like 10 words to get me in bed in the first <laughs> place. So that's definitely my choice. And he does have this like, really like, I don't know. He's got his shirt unbuttoned. He's injured, but he's laying there all sweaty, but he's still a smart ass. And I'm like, yeah, that's real fucking sexy. <laughs> so <laughs> Therefore it for sure. Yeah. Well, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on Jurassic Park and our month of talking about summer blockbuster horror movies. We want to know what you think about our conversation on this movie, Jaws, and, you know, how you feel about the movies themselves. You can do that on social media at the Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Or you can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com or call our hotline at 972-666-7733. Leave us a voicemail. We haven't gotten one in a while. You can also join us over on Patreon where the conversation about action horror continues and we'll be talking about dread. That's right. Also coming up on the main feed this month, Chris will be counting down his top 10 favorite action horror movies. So we should all be looking forward to that. I know I certainly am. And don't forget that our 100th episode is coming up and it's going to be our next Shooting the Flames in September. Call into the hotline, guys. Let us know what you think about the film flamers, maybe what some of your favorite episodes are. We want to play all those conversations and messages on shooting the flames and like chris said patreon.com slash the film flamers lots of bonus content polls and a growing community come and join it if you can't do that 
Maybe leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, a little snippet of why you like us, and we'll read that on Shooting the Flames as well. Speaking of Patreon, we did just submit a poll to our patrons where they are voting right now, well, as of this recording, on uh, our 10th entry into the uh, top 10 horror action films. And they're helping us out right now. And so uh, we'll let you know what they picked. I guess next week. <laughs> it's coming up next week. Yeah. <laughs> well, guys, as always, we appreciate the support and the listens. Thank you so much for listening to the Foam Flamers. We love you guys. We appreciate it very much. But I think it's time for us to hold on to our butts a little more privately. So we're going to head off and have some. <laughs> Clever girl. <laughs> Very expensive dreams. Yeah. We'll spare no expense in our sweet dreams. You're not going to say it? (laughs) (laughs) That went off the rails real quick. Sweet dreams. (laughs) Spare no expense. I wonder what that ice cream really tastes like. I mean, like, because she took one little tiny spoonful and she's like, oh, this is good. And he's like, spared no expense. And so, like, to my mind, even as a child and as an adult, I'm like, this must be some, like, orgasm-inducing kind of ice cream. She's like, mmm, you know, <laughs> after a serious conversation. <laughs> so, <laughs> gotta get my hands on that ice cream. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> That's your takeaway. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Just what I think about ice cream and Jeff Goldblum. <laughs>